Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. I'm Jay Sticky. And we have two guests with us today. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Uh, Oliver first. Hello, I'm Oliver Habrica. Currently, I run the team behind Less Wrong and Less Wrong 2.0. And uh, I'm Ben, and I also work at the Less Wrong team. Oh, Ben Pace is my full name. <laughs> Welcome, guys. And I recognize both your names, and at, like I, I see your names often enough that I kind of think you guys were there from the 2007 beginning period, but then like I also realize how long it's been, and maybe it's just been more activity lately. How long have you guys been at Less Wrong? Um, I think I discovered Less Wrong when I was about uh, 13, 14, which is now about uh, 10 years ago. Um, so I discovered it about 2010, 2011. I think the sequence has been finished. Um, I remember being very excited because uh, Eliezer came back to write Highly Advanced Epistemology 101 for Beginners, and I was there for, for the first time while it was being written. Um, and then, yeah, I think I followed uh, Less Wrong. I don't know, I think I've just, I initially found uh, an introduction to uh, Intuitive Explanation of Bayesian Reasoning by Eliezer, a friend showed at me at school, and then I think um, I just read the sequences into the night for, like, months, <laughs> just, like, <laughs> until, like, 3 a.m. every morning, going, wow, this stuff's great. Mm-hmm. Um and then, uh, yeah, uh, I, uh, I think I applied to go to CIFAR when I was like 16 and they were like, yeah, that sounds good. And then we couldn't organize it for like three years. And then finally when Uh-oh. I was 18, I, uh, I think I pretended to be, uh, ill for like prom and graduation so I could fly out to, uh, <laughs> San Francisco to go to my CIFAR workshop. <laughs> That's classic. Priorities. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I just been, uh sort of uh, following the community and part of it since then. Uh, awesome. I do want to, at some point, get someone from CIFAR on here to talk about it. Did you find it to be a valuable experience? Oh, yeah. I, uh, it was quite life-changing. Um, I, um, yeah, I remember, I think it was just my first evening there, uh, I had a conversation with someone where they were like, I was like, I'm trying to figure out what to do with my life, and I don't even know how to think about that. And they were like, I think you should stay here in the Bay for another month. I was like, ah, but I have like a flight away on like... Uh, Tuesday after this workshop or something. And he said, have you asked yourself the question, if I made it my goal to stay here in the Bay for longer, could I achieve? And I said, no, I have not asked myself this question. And then I stopped for about two minutes and I thought about it. And then I turned back and I said, huh, I think I could achieve that goal. And uh, then I did. <laughs> and I, uh, um, yeah, I think generally it, like, uh, it was a great place for like reflection on what I cared about and what my goals were um, and how to act in the world. Ollie, how was it for you? Yeah, I mean, I guess... Let me briefly answer Yanish's original question, which is just, I've been also around since, I think, 2000? I've been around since, I think, the 60th chapter of HP Wall came out. I think that's when I got. So that must have been around 2011, 2012. That's my rough guess. Sounds um, right. So yeah, I'm sadly not one of the, the very old timers that has seen the, the original writing of the sequences, but, but been around for quite a while. It does seem harder for me to have noticed it even earlier. I think it was also like 14, 15, or 16 around the time. Um, yeah. And then, um, yeah, for me, the story... Like if I, if, I, if I continue with Ben's trend of giving a quick rundown of kind of how, how I showed up here, um, I ended up uh, kind of finishing all the, I finished, finished HPMR, finished the sequences, and then I sent um, Miri at the time an email being like, hey, how can I help? And then Miri was like, well, I don't know, you can read all of our papers that we've released. And then I responded um, and was like, like a week later, I had actually read like a large fraction of the papers they sent me, which wasn't the less wrong stuff, but the more technical stuff. And I didn't understand everything, but I understood like a pretty decent fraction. And then I think Marla responded with like, huh, I've told this to like 20 people, but nobody had ever actually done this. I usually do this as like a method of like 
somehow Screaming. not having to answer all of these questions <laughs> from other people. <laughs> and then we talked a bit, a uh, bit more back and forth, and then I ended up getting offered an internship at Miri. Um, I think a year later. Um, and then I was I was living in Germany at the time, and then I flew over to to the Bay, and then turned out I wasn't actually that useful for Muri, so I mostly ended up interning at CIFA. Um, and so my my first CIFA workshop was actually in the done while I was interning at CIFA, which was a very interesting experience. Oh, excellent! Are, yeah. are you still working with CIFA? Uh, so technically, Les Wrong is part of CIFA. It's definitely like fiscal sponsorship. Like we don't have any like shared decision making structure or anything like this. But we are like directly below CIFA's office, like we rent our office space from CIFA. Um, and so definitely still collaborating with them quite a bit. And of course, fiscal sponsorship means that there's like some obligation for them to check what we do in order to make sure that that it fits with their charitable objectives and stuff. Uh, Ali actually had a especially fun time because he um, he's German. And I think uh, the sequences was perhaps one of the first major works he read in English. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. You just like oh, think a, certain a, words right. are in the dictionary that aren't in the dictionary. Yeah, my my it's so that's like I like learned English like while reading like my I was I was English watching Doctor Who. I was watching Doctor Who. It, like my two sources of learning English was watching Doctor Who with subtitles and reading the sequences, which gives you a very weird set of vocabularies. <laughs> um, and so I was like, like it, like I had like I was like fluent in English. I was speaking English with many of my friends, and I could talk to you completely fluently about stuff like quantum mechanics because it's one of the things that I had learned in English. But at some point, somebody else asked, like, "Can you get a broom?" And I was like, "What is a broom?" <laughs> I didn't know which. <laughs> Outstanding. <laughs> what do you remember? Any of the words that you thought were in the dictionary that actually aren't? Well, I had all of these. Like, there's definitely this thing where, just like, I had this. This sometimes Eliezer gives like some words, some somewhat like idiosyncratic meaning, and I just totally thought that that was like the standard meaning. Uh, um, so I think like what was the biggest one here? Um, my brain is blanking on rationalist jargon for some reason. Oh yeah, I'm gonna like Google uh, it. I definitely got. I definitely wasn't very good at using semicolons, but that's mostly because Eliezer does not know how to use semicolons. Nobody um, in America knows how to use semicolons. <laughs> they are a lost art and sort of arcane and weird. Yep. So, d- did you get? I, I'm assuming there's a lot of cultural overlap between the U.S. and Germany. Did you understand references to like Star Wars and English pop culture? Yeah, totally. Like Germany, like just like. History-wise, Germany is just like really, really deeply entangled with the US, even more than most other European countries. Um, just because like Germany was like like West Germany was just like occupied um, by the US for like I mean up until like thirty years ago, like yeah. basically, and so just the influence there is really massive. Um, awesome! I, I really love the fact that you were the only one who read all their papers. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, somebody came after me. Uh, I have some hopes, but yeah. Just it feels like that should be in one of those samurai origin story things. <laughs> it's almost disheartening right, well, that people are like, "Well, I want to do this, but I don't want to like have to work hard." And they just they don't read the you know do the back reading. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, way to rock! You said you taught a CIFAR workshop. What's uh, your focus? Um. So, uh, sorry. Um, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. I think I guess I don't really have focus. I guess if I were to take your class, what would I take away from it? So the current CIFA curriculum is like pretty, like the classes that I taught while I was like active as a CIFA instructor. I think my favorite class was just like trigger action plans and um, 
I think Fermi estimates. So both of those were kind of like DED things that I like to like to teach. Trigger action plans is is really pretty straightforward. It's just the the way I like to phrase it is like there's a way to model a brain as just like a very large pile of if statements. And it's sometimes a very useful abstraction to like apply to like how your system one works. Where just like you can be like like it's kind of in 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 psychology like in, in classical um, cognitive psychology is usually referred to as um, implementation intentions and something else. Um, it's like the basic idea where like in order to like reliably build habits, the basic thing that you want to do is you want to like concretely visualize a very specific trigger in your life. Like when I like. Like you want to reliably floss your teeth, so you want to make it so that like when you decide that you want to floss your teeth, you like very specifically and concretely visualize your bathroom, and you visualize like the the part of your your bathroom where your floss is stored, and you want to be like this is the trigger that I now visualize very concretely, and then I want to decide on a very very precise specific action that I want to take, and then in a class actually very frequently uh, we encourage people to take some trigger that they can that they can use, and then repeat it just physically right there a few times. So you might go to the bathroom and literally just like stand in front of your mirror, open the drawer and grab the floss and then put it back um, kind of in order to get that trigger right. Um, and there's like the part that's kind of like more the, the self-helpy part where like, okay, cool, that's a neat trick that I can get you to, to learn habits. But the part that I really like about it was this feeling of, I think when I first learned about it, it was this first kind of universal, concrete, cognitive model of how a brain works. Where, like, you know, I didn't really ask myself the question of how brain work, like, how brains work that much before I kind of, like, encountered that stuff. And very frequently when we teach it at CIFA workshops, it's kind of like you can be like, well, here's one way to model your brain. It's not the ultimate way. It's not the only way. But you can model yourself as being a large pile of if statements. And that, for the first time, gives people something to, like, slot into their, like, kind of section of them of the world of how brains work and that then allows really interesting other conversations to happen would it be like oh i can now actually talk about like how people reason in general and that opens up kind of everything up to the broader like art of rationality and like how does thinking work and why do i believe what i do believe um so that's kind of really why i why i like that class because it combines this really really practical benefit with this very universal lesson about rationality that i've seen have a really big effect on lots of people that's awesome man i've never uh like I, I've had this vague inclination, like, yeah, maybe one day I'll take a CIFAR workshop. I don't know exactly what it was about what you said, but I've never had been more strongly inclined to actually start looking into sessions, maybe in the next couple of years when the plague is over. Um, I would love to. That sounds awesome. Uh, yeah. All I could think of is like, I want to subscribe to your newsletter. <laughs> yeah. Well, I do run a newsletter. It's called lesswrong.com. Um, oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> Curated emails two to three times a week of <laughs> the best posts. <laughs> oh, I actually didn't know about that feature. Yep. Yeah, if you sign up, there's a small checkbox that says if you re- create an account, you can subscribe to curated emails. And that's actually yeah. how like, yeah. a pretty large fraction of people um, interface with less wrong. Yeah, I think I one of the things we've... That uh, box? Huh. Uh, if we if, probably if you have an old account, we like didn't want to like suddenly take all the accounts from like like there's like fifty thousand accounts that were like registered before we created Lithron two point and I didn't want to suddenly start blasting all of them emails <laughs> three times a week. That Valid. seemed, seemed but uh, yeah, I think um, created emails are like part of our. Uh, I feel like uh, I don't know if I'm using the term technically correctly, but something like positive selection feels like an important part of uh, intellectual progress, where um, we're not just like weeding out the like bad posts, but we're like regularly saying this was great well done this was people should read this sort of stuff and uh, yeah that's the wider audience the rationalist newsletter right it's just called that um on that's wrong 
Uh, you can sign up for curated emails. I don't know that we have a thing called the Rationalist Newsletter. Okay, maybe I'm thinking of something else. Someone else t- does the Rationalist Newsletter. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, it might be Deluxe. Yeah, it might be Deluxe 917. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think when we initially were getting started um, working on Less Wrong, we did a bunch of user interviews with people, uh, and they told us about like the first couple of times. Uh, like I, I specifically recall Kai Satala, uh, who's a great Less Wrong and has written great sequences about... Um, psychology and emotions in the brain and multi-agent models of his own brain. I and, love uh, Yeah, and he gave a story about, um, I think his first time he wrote a post on Less Wrong, he's very nervous, he'd been reading for uh, like a couple of years, and he just got a little comment from Eliezer going, hey, this was a great post, uh, wrote to me, uh, upvoted. And he was like, whoa, this was so much better than I expected, the response. I expected some sort of like critical explanation of like why I was mistaken. Um and so I think we took that to heart in a lot. We just like three times a week now we write on someone's post. This post was great. Let me tell you some reasons why. Um, uh-huh. And then like mail it out to a couple of thousand people. Um, so yeah, I think we uh, generally, um, and over even over the years, I've like updated more towards this model. I think uh, there was a point, uh, I wrote a post about it about, um, I think two years ago, where Ollie and I looked into some of the uh, scientific journals from like the 20s and 30s uh, to try and figure out what they were doing. And specifically, I think we've looked over all the papers in the journal where Turing first published um, Turing computers and uh, Turing machines, his paper, when he was, I think, just either an undergrad or a PhD. And also into a a journal, I think Einstein was... um, Yeah, my German came came in handy during that time. Yeah, yeah, that Einstein was curating or something like this. Um, And I remember being surprised, like, I quite actively shocked that uh, through the entire journal, through every page of every paper... There wasn't a single sentence of criticism. There wasn't a, this person's wrong and let me show you every single way in which they're wrong. They just were like, here are some papers I thought were good and I'm going to build on them. Or here are some other papers that I thought were good. At one point there was someone saying, "Ah, I'm not going to take quite the same approach as this person. Um, But it was primarily a method of like promoting the best ideas as opposed to like cutting down the worst or something like this. Um, The pre-internet culture. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so, yeah, we've done a lot on that song, I think, of trying to like, and similarly with the book, which we'll, I guess we'll discuss, is like trying to reward the best stuff as opposed to just like cut down the worst or something. How? Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is less than five years old. The uh, less wrong 2.0, right? Yeah, we are. I think I've now been working on it for three and a half years, and I always forget. That seems about right. Okay, because I I'm pretty darn sure it didn't exist yet when we first started Bayesian conspiracy, and that's been almost five years now. So. Yeah, when it first came online, I was like, this is awesome. I really hope it works out, but I don't want to get too excited right now. And mm. I'm really happy that it did work out because, you know, lots of times things don't. And obviously it was in good hands. Yeah, I won I won a surprising number of bets at the time. Like we definitely were like presented with with a lot of criticism. I think I won I won like a five hundred dollar bet with Nate. Um CEO of Machine Intelligence Research Institute, who was just like, I mean, I think you're just obviously going to fail and then and then he he said he would publicly announce that I was right. One and a half. <laughs> Did you take a bet with uh, Ryan Carey? I recall him predicting that we'd fail. Yeah, I remember Ryan Carey. I also had a had an informal bet with Critch. Um, it's really mm. Has he already publicly announced that you were right? Yeah, I think he did on Facebook. Um, what was the like deciding factor in you um, being in you winning that bet? Um, did you like anchor on some metric like number of? posts or uh, i think we we had set up a system that was like uh if it turns out to be like disputed we would like ask like we had some third party agreed on i don't remember who it was um but in the end he just sent me a message from being like yo okay seems like you're right <laughs> i love it yeah uh, on the 
on the Bayesian Conspiracy uh, Discord, we have a uh, all bets bear witness channel. And half the fun <laughs> of winning is that typically the loser has to declare like, yep, this person was right. Nice. And so that, that's almost, you know, that's what that's worth more than the $10 or whatever, you know, mm. small amounts we tend to, to bet over. So, yeah, I really love taking bets on like major projects I'm working on or something with the uh, again, we'll get to the I made some bets on the books. I'll tell you about them in a bit, <laughs> but uh, I won those. <laughs> well, we can we can uh, move yeah, to the I'll... books if whenever you guys are ready. Sure. Always ready. Um, it's not true. I'm definitely not always ready. But <laughs> <laughs> Do we so quick question, do we want to divert to the less strong posts we normally do at the top, or since we're on a roll here, just keep going into the books? Actually, you make a good point. If we're going to get to them, we should probably knock them out nearer the beginning, huh? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, All I right. love the That's also two great posts. So. Yeah. Yeah. Them. All right. Well, we could start with Einstein's arrogance. Yes. And this is the, in a nutshell, the post where um, basically when Einstein was asked, hey, uh, if Eddington's observations that he's going to go do during an eclipse don't, or, you know, don't demonstrate the uh, predictions of your experiment. What would you? What do you have to say? And he's like, "Oh, well, I feel bad for Sir Eddington because my my theory is right." Um, no, no, no. It's it's better than that. Uh, since Eddington was going to be measuring eclipses to try to confirm uh, the theory of relativity, uh, when the, he was asked if the observations fail to match his theory, Einstein says, "I would feel sorry for the good Lord because the theory is correct." Oh, wait, because oh, no. he was Lord Eddington. He oh, Lord man, Lord. I thought that he was saying he would feel sorry for God. Another <laughs> <laughs> level of arrogance. That would be yeah. for us. Like, well, I feel sorry for God that he, <laughs> that he set up the wrong universe because my model is metaphysically correct. That's what I was thinking, that he was like, I'm sorry God screwed up the eclipse, man. <laughs> That's delightful. Yeah, that, that would be one more, uh, another rung on the arrogance ladder. Um, that said, he was right. So one Lord was wrong, at least one. Uh, well, not <laughs> but Lord Eddington wasn't trying to disprove him, but uh, he was just trying to test it. So that's, that's the question. Was God doesn't sorry, go play ahead, dice. <laughs> I just was remembering, wasn't it Einstein that said God doesn't play dice? Yes. He, like, at least I, I remember it being attributed to him, even though I have yeah. to flag that whenever anything gets attributed to Einstein, I'm not supposed to. Oh, that's true. That. I know Stephen Hawking repeated that attribution in at least one of his books. So if uh, if Hawking so believed it, I have to uh, reread the original papers to be sure Einstein had even come up with relativity. So much gets attributed to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> this, he suddenly feels much less arrogant to me because, like, just 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 disagreeing with somebody else's empirical data. They like maybe they wrote it down wrong. Maybe their observations were incorrect. Like I thought. When it says Einstein's arrogance at the top of the post, I was like, that is hubris, you know? Like, that is the sort of arrogance I was thinking. I want to add one other uh, observation I see from the post, which is that uh, the sentence is, a journalist asked Einstein what he'd do. And I'm like, uh, oh, I can imagine, in fact, being slightly more arrogant than usual towards journalists. I don't know. They're often very critical. <laughs> they just miss, like, you know, the journalist twisted the quote to make it sound more headliney. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I feel really sorry for Einstein if he had to deal with the level of press that, like, yeah, my, my guess oh, it was yeah. slightly less bad at the time. I don't know. They like had yellow journalism back then, which oh, yeah, that's true. I, I think that's basically the same thing we have nowadays, just with a different name. What was uh, yellow journalism? It's the same thing where people uh, greatly distorted the facts and would say things that were, in some cases, just blatantly untrue in order to push their own agendas. Hmm. Scientists baffled. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Was Interesting. Einstein wrong? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I still see that one all oh, the man. time. Um, 
Yeah, so moving through this one real quick, uh, the the gist is, so since he's not, in fact, saying that the Lord himself is is wrong, he's challenging Lord Eddington, or he's, he's challenging the the possible outcome of the experiment failing to prove relativity, um, or to demonstrate it, rather. Uh, so the question is, like, is he being super arrogant by saying that? And I guess in a sentence, to summarize, not really. Like, the fact that he had postulated the theory of general relativity at this point and demonstrated it mathematically like that is more than him just saying uh you know it, it, it that, that already has so much weight behind it than it does if it was just him guessing on a dice roll or something right yeah the amount of bits of evidence it required to pull these particular equations out of the space of all equations um there was an immense amount of like evidence already pinning down what the possible outcomes could be uh that he to have done this far he must uh, already have had and given that he was correct he must have already had an immense amount of evidence suggesting this thing uh, to the point where he felt confident that if someone said empirically it didn't come out, that they had messed up with their empirical tests. This post ties very well with the uh, previous one, how much evidence is necessary, because uh, that one specifically talked about bits of evidence, which we kind of skimmed over because it was more technical and we don't have, you know, a written format. But uh, he, he does say that to assign a 50% pro- Eliezer in this case says to assign a more than 50% probability to a correct candidate from a pool of more than 100 million possible hypotheses, you need at least 27 bits of evidence. Um, and then says that just uh, coming coming up with, um, what was it? Uh, if you would, how likely is it that Einstein would have exactly enough observational evidence to raise general relativity to the level of his attention, but only justify 55% probability? Uh, and it was like 27.3 bits. And he was like, how likely is it that he had 27.3 bits of information rather than mm. 28 or 29? He, he was probably pretty damn sure that it was true from all the info that he did have. Mm. Anyone else agreeing on this one? Uh, I have one unrelated thing, but uh, uh, I do want to, I wonder if Ali wants to say anything. We were chatting a bit about Einstein's general, like um, reasoning methods being also kind of surprising at the time. Like, it was somewhat controversial the way he came to his physical theories. It wasn't like like each step of it was pinned down by evidence. He did a lot of sort of uh, reasoning from his intuition and building up sort of mental models, um, which was also kind of interesting. As uh, I think that was sort of controversial at the time as a way of doing physics. Yeah, there's just... I guess there's like two interesting directions that I can imagine going with this with this post. Well, one of is like the question of okay, but why why does why does like traditional rationality, as Eliezer calls it, or just like kind of like traditional science, have this norm of like that kind of being bad form? And number two is like I think it's very interesting to like um, think about what kind of mind Einstein had um, that like caused him to be like arrogant in this way, if we want to like call it arrogance. Um, I generally like I mean of course Einstein has like discoverer of like two biggest paradigm shifts in like physics of the last century um it's like i always find him a very very central like kind of like data point in when i'm trying to figure out how good reasoning is supposed to work which i guess is a bit of course like everyone tries to do that but i still find it very interesting um I've had a book since I was a teenager that my sister got me and I haven't actually read it, but it's downstairs called How to Think Like Einstein. Nice. So you've, you've reminded me that that book exists. I will read that and get back to you if I actually learn how to think like Einstein. Great. <laughs> I think this post is a very interesting um, contrast between how humans think and how perfect Bayesian reasoners think. And I think like Elias are actually at a point to doing that. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, he he does point out in this that uh if you have like 
enough evidence to find this hypothesis in hypothesis space that you need like a huge amount, like you said, 27 bits. Um, from a Bayesian perspective, you need an amount of evidence roughly equivalent to the complexity of the hypothesis just to locate the hypothesis in theory space. If there's a hundred million alternatives, you need at least 27 bits of evidence just to focus your attention uniquely on the correct answer. So like for a Bayesian reasoner, you need a lot of evidence. And so you would be really uh, sure that once your attention has been drawn to one particular hypothesis out of several hundred million, that you got the right one. But like, I don't think humans necessarily work that way. Like, yeah, at the end. Yeah. We, uh, since the human brain's not a perfectly efficient processor of information, Einstein probably had overwhelmingly more evidence than would in principle be required for a perfect Bayesian to assign massive confidence to general relativity. And he just didn't even use a number there. <laughs> so just a lot. He does say that. I'm not sure. I don't know. Because I think humans cut out a lot of steps and will give probabilities too high if of a weight if they, you know, if it is convenient for them. And I don't think any human would really consider 100 million possible hypotheses. They already start with a vastly curtailed hypothesis space. So I, I don't think a human... I think an average human, yeah. But this is Einstein. He might have had <laughs> a real lot of evidence. Yes. For a lot to yeah. put anybody on a pedestal, it's Einstein. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the key difference that kind of comes through in the post is um, that it just matters really drastically. Like, your perspective really matters a lot. Like, I don't think it is it is bad for someone to ask Einstein to provide more evidence if they are not convinced. Because, of course, like, they don't have that those bits of evidence. Um, and I think there's kind of this... Um, I find this part of... Um, when I think about how science works, I find it very interesting that, like, um, in particular in, in substantial parts of modern science, it's, like, very hard to have your internal credences diverge very much from what you think your public credences are, where, like, it's very hard to be, like, I am 99.99% certain of this, but, like, I think you should only be 30% certain on this. This is, like, a very, like, complicated mental operation and, like, verbally very hard to get around, where usually, like... When I say that, like, this is 99% likely, I'm kind of asserting that you are also supposed to believe it is 99% likely. Um, and, like, then if the other person is like, what? I don't think it's 99% likely. We don't actually have a lot of, like, very elegant scripts to be like, oh, I think I have the relevant evidence, even though you do not. And I think a way in which, like, science has, has dealt with this is kind of to make it so that, like, when you assert confidence into something, you kind of assert the confidence that is known for the complete audience that you're, like, like that. that is kind of, like, achievable via consensus of the scientific community or the full audience you're talking to or something like oh, that. Oh, okay. Um, so when you say that something's 99% likely, I think what it usually gets translated to is we have a set of evidence that we can all agree on that um, like makes this hypothesis 99% likely, which is, of course, a drastically different statement than saying, I think I have evidence that makes this 99% likely. Um, yeah. And I've recently been thinking about this where um, I was just walking home yesterday and I was, was mentally... I don't remember how I got into that, but I was mentally analyzing my internal affect for how I would react to a bunch of sentences prefixed with I think versus not I think, and how drastically those changed my um, my affect towards them. Like, I was like... Um, In what way? So... Um, I think sounds so much less confident. Like, it's, I, I it's weird because if someone says, I believe, if, you know, if you're talking to a, a... And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but for myself, like... Yeah. 
if I if I'm talking to Inyash and he says I believe this, I'm like, oh, okay, he's really sure about that. If I'm talking to um, I don't know, like my mom and she says I, I believe this happened, like that sounds way less sure than if she just said this happened. Um, like it's it's a so like if someone says oh I think this is it rather than this is it, uh, it to me it it like cuts my confidence in what they're saying and they're I think they're trying to communicate the confidence in what they're saying like it just cuts it way down. I remember when I first started writing, I was still in the habit of uh, speaking kind of like a rationalist. And that actually makes for terrible writing because (laughs) we often couch things with, I think, I believe, and this stuff. And the first thing you got to do is get rid of all that. Unless you're specifically writing a character who is in dialogue demonstrating (laughs) that they're unsure. Didn't you you want all of this uh, important epistemic information about my epistemic state? No, I just wanted to know what you were thinking about today. (laughs) My sentences were so much more accurate before you asked me this. So so I do think it's it's not... Sorry, go ahead, Trace. uh, Just sort of an aside, uh, but there's this book that is about a girl with OCD and... I really related to this. It's one of my childhood books because I also had OCD. And it's the first time I ever actually saw it portrayed. Uh, and one of the things that she does is when journaling, she realized that I can't ever be sure that something is true. So she would start every sentence with, I think. Mm. And then this became a ritual where she would write just a bunch of, I think, I think, I think at the top of the page. But then that didn't mm. feel good enough. So she like took the words I think and made them into a symbol and then would draw the symbol repeatedly around the page. Oh, <laughs> wow. Just huh. to really, really make sure that she wasn't claiming to know something that she maybe didn't know. And it would be things like, I think I went to school today. I think my Damn. mom said this. <laughs> oh, that's great. There's a lot of interesting neurological stuff from that. But anyway, uh, on Real quick, what was the book called? It's called Growing Anyway Up. Okay, in case anyone wants to read it. Yeah, it's like a YA book, but recommended. It's really, I, I thought it was really interesting. Nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. Going back to one of the other points that uh, we were talking about, um, I think uh, it is important for like healthy communities that are either intellectual or scientific communities or even like um, uh, building communities that like try and uh, build useful things like startups. Um, this is an important point to realize that people um, – can have a lot of evidence that you do not have, and they can be much more confident in a thing than you can be, um, and not have norms where this is like inappropriate or something. Um, I think it's often the case that uh, you know small teams of startups have like interviewed like hundreds of users and um, understood like built a pretty accurate model that of what um, problems they're facing and has like tested trying to fix a little bit of, and making a prediction about how it would go and just being validated to the point where they um, just have uh, overwhelming evidence that there is like a product here that a lot of people sort of want to use. Um, and then they're very confident in their business, uh, which out from the outside, I think people often call it kind of overconfidence. Um, whereas I think you can just, in fact, uh, similar to Einstein here, although not exactly the same methodology, uh, reach quite a high level, like get quite a lot of evidence about a thing, um, but not in a way that is like easily communicable in like a short conversation or something. Yeah. Like I find it interesting about the, I think, distinction. There's this, like, I think English was just like, well, it, it kind of communicates a different level of credence. But I found it very interesting that I think actually, even when you explicitly include, include the credence, my internal reaction to it is still drastically different. Where, um, like, the statement, like, that's at most 50% likely, versus the statement, I think that's at most 50% likely, feel drastically different to me. Yeah. Where the first one is, like, if, I, if you come to me in a conversation and say, that's at most 50% likely... That sounds to me like you're asserting that we both are supposed to know that it's at most 50% likely. Um, the second one says, this is my belief. This is what I think. Um, 
I do observe when you said that my internal responses to the two, the person who said, I think that's 50% likely. I was like, I had some in, uh, impulse to like ask about how they were viewing the thing and uh, like get a better understanding of their perspective or share a bit more of mine. And the person who said, that's no more than 50% likely, I just wanted to offer them a bet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't help but, well, I was going to digress a bit with the annoyance of trying to get some people to agree to bets, but I, I find that people who aren't raised with the, or who aren't raised necessarily, but who aren't, haven't adopted the like mentality of sticking your neck out to defend a belief. If you offer them, like, I'll just give the brief story. My manager was, uh, for some reason, brought it up like twice in a week. He, he wanted to say, like, there might be some legitimacy to the false election claims going on. And we should really just sit and, you know, none of us have all the evidence. It, I think it's putting words, you know, paraphrasing. I think it's epistemically humble of us to just kind of, you know, wait for the information to come in. And I was like, I tell you what, I'll bet you $500 tier 50 that right. uh, it comes out this way. And his response, oh, I don't bet. I'm not a gambling person. Mm. And I'm like, well, you don't want yeah. you don't want five hundred dollars? Like, then, yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> this has been uh, one of the uh, benefits of having prediction markets is that uh, all of my housemates and friends have just been making money off. Uh, oh yeah, it's been so insane. I'm so confused. I have so many thoughts on this. <laughs> have you seen? Yeah, I mean, you've seen there's been a bunch questions. of prediction markets still uh, sticking like until I think the last couple of days, but still for like a whole month after the election, uh, put it at like twelve percent that Trump is still the uh, president. And so uh, I think it just a bunch of my friends have put in a couple thousand dollars into all the different prediction markets um, and just been making money. Which is I don't learn how to do that. Isn't but, that uh, technically not legal? Um, no, there are some legal prediction markets. So predicted is legal and um, there's one other one that's legal in the U.S. Okay, that's what's been stopping me because I, I kept hearing that betting on election results is is completely illegal in any way. Um Nope, definitely. Predicted has a specific. So I have looked into this a good amount because one of our good friends, uh, Jacob, who like currently is collaborating a bit with Less Wrong, um, has a. Um, he has for a while been trying to get um, SFTC. No action letter. Yeah, a no action letter from the FTC, whatever, whatever the thing is that's supposed to like limit like betting and, and various, various currency related things um, in the US. Um, a letter that like is the thing that predicted got that allows him to run a betting market on various interesting things. Um, and so I've read a good amount about all the regulations in the space because um, oh. I've been, been thinking about things. Okay, that's uh, that yeah, a good update mind, to have. Really. Uh, but um, sorry, Jace, I think you were going to ask a question. Uh, I was curious what like what things he wanted to include uh, as things you could bet on. But also realize that we may, we, maybe we should like get through the first sequence. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll hold this up for one more second. What was the name of that website you said? Predicted. Predicted. Uh, yes. Predict just, it. Oh, predict, predict it. it. Gotcha. Exactly. All right. Well, I need to start making some money, so I'm gonna bookmark I, that for now. Can I hit one last thing on this post before we move on? No. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) That was not an answer I was expecting. It reminds me of the time we met with Robin Hanson. Remember he came out to dinner and like the third time I started a, 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 like a topic with him. Hey, can I ask you something? He was like, you can stop asking me that because you always can. That's why. I'm here. <laughs> like he said it really nice, but I was, I was like, oh man, that was, yeah, it was a verbal tick of mine when when it's like someone I really respect. I'm like, oh, I don't want to use your time. Can I ask you this thing? Um, but no, the the thing is, there's a post later on which uh, always never quite sat right with me, where Eliezer says that a 
very powerful true Bayesian predictor could come up with the theory of relativity watching just three frames of a video of, I believe, a water droplet falling on and bending a blade of grass. And uh, he said if it was powerful enough, it might be able to do it with just two frames. And like that always seemed really ridiculous to me. But reading this, especially at the end, when he says that since the human brain is not a perfectly efficient processor, Einstein probably had overwhelmingly more evidence than he would need in principle. Like maybe, the, the more I think about it, the more like maybe in three frames of video, you can get 27 bits of information. And if you were a obscenely powerful Bayesian predictor processor, maybe you could get general relativity out of that. And that's what he was setting up with this post on Einstein's arrogance. Yeah, I've been, that thought experiment is one that I've actually been thinking about for like basically the last decade, just like at least <laughs> once a month or so. It's been like one of the big ones. And I've had so many disagreements with lots of people I respect on it who think that the number is much, much, much higher. And even like, like I think I had at one point a, a disagreement with, with Luke Milhauser, um, where he thought that it was um, pretty likely that um, maybe not a perfect Bayesian predictor, but at least anything we're going to get in the form of AGI or something to that, still has probably will have to run experiments in order to like figure out the right like model. Um, like at least extending beyond relativity or something. And I'm I still think that's wrong, but it's like definitely I've I've talked to many people I respect who who disagree with kind of that free frame number, at least in the AGI case, quite a bit. It, it feels absurdly low to me, but I am no longer at the point where I think it's obviously wrong. Like it could maybe be possible. It reminds me of, um, uh, I think the guy's name is Douglas Hubbard, who wrote How to Measure Anything, which is a, a cool book I read as a teenager. And it's um, there's, one there's one example in that which always stood out to me, which was um, people often talk about how you need more data and lots of data before you can like feel very confident about a hypothesis. Um, and he was sort of counterintuitively making the claim that like the first data point is uh, most of the information you need. Um, and his example was about uh, guessing the weight of jelly babies. Um, and you, if you went to someone like me, for example, what are jelly babies? Or sorry, jelly beans. I, I can't remember. Babies. I'm really reminded of free worlds collide. Oh God! It's you like a jelly embryo, really. It's a baby at four days of gestation. <laughs> Do you guys not have jelly babies? Is it just a British thing? <laughs> well, they look more like yeah, beans than bears. babies to us, or to me, anyway. Uh, oh, no, you uh, make them little bears or something. Anyway, uh, we have, we have yeah, gummy bears. Okay, well, ours are yeah, a bit... They actually shape the the exact phenomenology of the sweet. <laughs> I really want to go to Britain and just see people eating jelly embryos. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, sometimes this is horrible. Sometimes our housemates, just like... I think Daniel Phelan, who's from Australia, does this particularly much. Well, he just asserts that something is completely normal in Australia. That, of course, it is. When I heard about enough. Australia, I would just believe it, regardless of what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, Isn't there an Australian saying that started out that way? That's like, I didn't come here to uh, wrestle spiders or something? And have sex with snakes? I can't quite recall how it ends. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, all right, I'm going to go with jelly beans. Uh, so you're like, what? Um, what is the weight of a jelly bean? And if you're like me, who has uh, not done much cooking for myself, I don't really know how much things weigh. Or I certainly didn't when I was reading the book. Um, and you're like, is it? Is it 20 grams? Is it 2 grams? Is it 200 grams? Is it 0.2 grams? I don't know the right order of magnitude for this sort of thing. Um, and then if I give you the first jelly bean and you're like, this is 15 grams. You're like, huh, I think I have a, a pretty good guess of what the next one might be. I, like I'm much like I've zoomed in on roughly what order of magnitude, I guess. And maybe you gave me like a weird one that was like a broken piece of it and you're a bit wrong or something. Um, 
But I think often the first data point can orient you just what like order of magnitude, what ontology are we even talking about? And so I have some sense that like, like I've not really lived in any other like physical universes and I don't really have much intuition about what they could exist, what could exist. Um, but if I had thought about what sort of physical universes could exist or something and like what physics, what the space of physics is, and then you just show me a thing falling, I can imagine going, oh, we're in that kind of universe, the sort where the things are attracted to each other with this sort of rough, like, uh, I can see the size of the thing the water droplet fell to, I can see the size of the water droplet, I can see the way it, like, bent over one frame, which tells me a bit about the fluid mechanics. Um, I can see, uh, you know, I can see that there is, like, things of a certain level, I can see what level of organization we're on with, like, how many levels of atoms or something are going on. Um, And so I, I don't feel confident either way about how surprised I could feel for the first time watching the physics of the universe play out and therefore how much I could update on it. Um, so I don't have a strong opinion, but I, I don't feel confident that it's not two or three frames. That's a damn good point. If you don't even know what sort of universe you're in, those initial frames are going to give you a huge amount of info. Yeah. And I just, I just don't know how much, cause I don't know. I didn't have a prior coming into this universe very much. <laughs> yeah, really. yeah. How many self-consistent theories of physics there are that are like close by two hours? Like, it's plausible that there just aren't that many, and it's like, well, if you actually write down, like, of course, they're infinitely many, but if you, like, actually, like, try to, like, order them by complexity, and you're like, well, I don't know, like, they're only, like, there's a bunch of ones, like, the only self-consistent universes that, like, can support life actually have, like, one of these, like, maybe 100,000 options, and just, like, this one really looks like it's in, it's one of these. Um. All right, well, shall we move on? Move on. Uh, I'll come Oh, I actually, I did want to add one thing in about predict it. Sorry, I just didn't want to give people bad investing advice. Um, <laughs> I think you should uh, Google a couple of posts on Less Wrong. I think there was even one in the last year about predict it, because um, the main thing that goes wrong is uh, uh, you can often look at a predict it prediction and think that's wrong. But the issue is there's a lot of transaction fees such that um, if you were to try and make money on the mar- on the very small margins or something, they would actually charge you more money for trying to make the transaction such that it would not be worth it. So there's, there's some difficulties there. So don't just, if you see a prediction that's a little bit off, don't immediately expect you can make money. I would look into it a bit more. <laughs> I saw one that the top one here under US presidential election is that uh, 95%, 95 cent uh, is the, uh, has the Democratic Party winning the, the presidential seat. Um, I'm imagining that there's more than a nickel on the dollar for transaction fees, unless you're probably betting a lot, right? Uh, so the problem is you can't bet a lot. That's the thing that makes predicted legal is that the, cap, the bets are capped per person at, I think, something like 500, something between 500 and $5,000 of stakes. Um, to me, that's a lot. Yeah, I just... Oh, yeah, you, you couldn't bet, uh, you know, several figures of income on it. But yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Is that per bet or like per month? I think it's like your total stake you're allowed to have in a market, like how much money you're allowed to have tied up. Oh, okay, yeah. And if you're, like, making 5 6% margin, that's not nearly enough to live on. Yeah. All right, that was my point about predicted. Should we talk about the next sequences for another 50 minutes and then wrap up the podcast? <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> yeah, thanks for clarifying that, actually. That's good information. Yeah. Um, and then Occam's Razor. Are we ready for Occam's Razor? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, so, go ahead. Oh, yeah, no, you do it. Oh, okay. Well, I was going to say um, just a real quick recap of Occam's Razor. I'm assuming everyone already knows what it is, but for anyone who may have missed it, uh, it is the the heuristic that the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. 
and the one that you should go with. It, uh, I believe formally it stated something like one should not multiply entities unnecessarily or something. Yeah, that's mm. what I remember. Yeah. Okay. And in the post, uh, Eliezer says that the more complex an explanation is, the more evidence you need just to find it in belief space, is kind of his version of that. And uh, he said that Occam's Razor is often phrased as the simplest explanation that fits the facts, is uh, the definition of Occam's Razor. And Robert Heinlein replied that the simplest explanation is, the lady down the street is a witch, she did it. Uh, which, on the face of it, you know, seems to be the simplest, maybe. But it uh, hides a lot of complexity within the sentence that we just don't think about. Because there's a lot of labels in that sentence that have stored complexity in them. He pointed it out that we could um, shorten the entire sentence just to a sequence of a few letters and say, look, it's even shorter. Does that reduce the complexity? And no, it doesn't, because the audience already has to know what those few letters stand for. Um, and in a similar way, like which itself is a label for a lot of extraordinary assertions. So just because we know about a concept, that doesn't mean it's actually simple. And in fact, the human brain is the most complex artifact in the known universe. So positing a human brain as an explanation for something already has a lot of complexity built into the answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've definitely, like, I I was confused about that, um, that post for a while. Um, and I made some confused questions, unless wrong, like three or four years about it. Um, because I think the post really is it's two very different things. Um, and I, I totally got them mixed up at some point. Where the two thing, the first thing that it asserts is that many concepts that humans think of as simple aren't really simple. And I think that's a point that's actually pretty hard to make. Um, that requires a bunch more additional justification that totally the post doesn't do. And then it makes a second point that's completely separate from that, which is that an explanation needs to actually reduce the complexity of the remaining data. Which is something like, uh, if you want to give me an explanation, after I have, like, you have given me the, like, like the, the lady down the street is a witch, she did it. The thing that he's, the, the totally separate point he's making is that, like, that doesn't tell me that the sequence doesn't come out, like, A, B, C, D, E. Um, I, like, still have to say that because actually, like, having heard the first half of the sentence of, like, the lady down the street did it, um, like, doesn't actually help me at all predicting the sequence. It gives me, like, zero Bayesian evidence about the sequence. Um, yeah, you're right. This should really be two posts. And I think the first one is actually kind of hard because there's this really real objection to um, uh, to to the to the flavor of, of Occam's razor that Eliezer is proposing here um, that like usually goes technically under the name Solomonov induction, where you have this this giant free variable um, that's the choice of universal Turing machine. And he talks a bit in a post about like, well, you can choose a universal Turing machine however he wants, but I've actually found it like a pretty pretty a thing pretty hard to wrap your mind around um, because just like Indeed, just like there's nothing in the laws of physics and nothing in the laws of reasoning that we know of that means that we can't use like witches as fundamental units in our programming language. Um, huh. Like I can totally write you a programming language that like I choose as my universal Turing machine that has like simulate a like universe with a single witch in it in an empty wide room that's like a print like it's a primitive at the same level like let's say instead of like I, we have python and we have python plus and python plus is all of python except it has the which command which allows me to type in which open parenthesis sentence and then what the which command outputs 
is a string that is whatever the witch responds after I simulate her in a like large, like infinitely large white universe with a booming voice speaking down the string that I input into that voice, uh, into into that void. And that's like a language that is like I can use that as my universal Turing machine. And now suddenly witch is a fundamental concept. And now we need to argue for some reason that that is inelegant, that that is wrong, that that sounds like a really weird choice, a fundamental entity in my programming language. Um, but those are all arguments that have to be additionally made. I Wait, I don't know. I don't think I could agree with that because, I mean, maybe he should have made a post about what a Turing machine is, but like a Turing machine is the simplest possible way that information can be processed in concept. Like you would have to have some way to simulate a witch first, and to do that, you would need something equivalent of a Turing machine because information would have to be processed to simulate anyone, right? Um, so the like a, a Turing like when you think of universal Turing machines, um, usually what like the key question is what is the ontology of the thing that you are describe like of the of the language you are writing in. Um, I do really think it's very useful to just think of programming language as Turing machines. Like that's like, I find that much simpler to think about as opposed to the weird thing that Turing wrote down, which is like this weird like robot that like slides on a tape to the left and right. Um, and you, we know that every universal Turing machine can be modeled as a simple programming language and that every programming language can be modeled as a universal Turing machine with an appropriate translator at the beginning of it. Um, but a Turing machine at its simplest is just a way of storing information and then doing things to that operation, uh, doing operations to that information to change it into a different type of information. Like you, you can't really have any simpler form of information processing, right? Um, I think that seems right. Correct. I think, but... I think, by the way, I am totally confused about it. I, I was like, oh, Occam's Razor. I noticed I feel really philosophically confused about it. And then we talked about it for five minutes and I feel basically as bad. Uh, but um, <laughs> uh, certainly I think it, with a Turing machine... You can, in principle, run, I think, the very costly computation that Ali was describing, where you could, uh, uh, with enough space, you could uh, simulate or emulate or compute what would happen. You, like, specify the physics, and you specify that there is, like, a witch in this void, and then you, like, output some translation from whatever the, like, physical vibrations are in the universe to a set of ones and zeros, and have that be a part of the output of the Turing machine. Oh, absolutely. I think for me that the idea of having like a witch function and then calling that simple, like the meat of the witch function, you know, you, you go into define it, like all of that's going to be enormously complex, right? And so, so I, I, I think- complicated a program than I have ever written. <laughs> no, right. like the, the pro problem is in that moment, you're begging the question. When you say that it is enormously complex, what concept of complexity are you using to assert that? Oh, nice. Good point complexity that is grounded on the idea that you already have some programming language in mind that measures the complexity of that hypothesis. But the whole point of some one-off induction is that, well, you need to first choose a programming language in which you measure complexity. Um, and so there's a separate thing of just like elegance where, well, like it's kind of like humans have some shared intuitions of elegance and that points towards some natural choice of universal Turing machine that makes stuff like, well, we're just going to like have a witch function sound really dumb. But I think now we need to argue from that intuition as opposed to arguing from some kind of mathematical truth. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I guess what I meant is that the witch function wouldn't be brief in what it did. Um, I'm, I mean, so I don't know if that's the exact same thing as not complex, but I can't imagine uh, the the model of this, of, of, the, of the witch function being like, you know what I'm saying? Uh, brief. Um, you know, it's not going to be like 
adding two numbers or rolling a die. It's I, I guess it depends on what the witch function does. Um, if all the witch function does is yeah, well, uh, within what <laughs> bounds, right? Um, yeah. Does it does it turn random villagers into newts, or does it just uh, like is it just lighter than a duck? Like that if 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 it was just weighs less than a duck, then that witch would be super easy, right? Um, so yeah, I find I do, actually, I, sorry, do, I, I do have a, I have a hard time imagining, and perhaps this is like the root of where my intuition comes from, that uh, some things are simpler. I have a hard time imagining creating a programming language where it was simpler to simulate a witch in the universe and chat with her and get her output versus, you know, writing some if statements. I feel like both in terms of like the programming so, language and the like hardware, like the amount, just the actual amount of hardware I would need to compute one of them versus the other. Seems. Kind of. I think this is. I actually think modern neural nets provide like a really useful intuition pump here. Now that like more people are familiar with them, like neural nets are kind of this archetypical example of in the space of like neural net programming languages, it's actually kind of hard to end up with one that's just like really good at reliably adding numbers. It's like I, I get what you're saying, but like the the biological neural nets that we were familiar with before DeepMind were human brains, which, as stated, were one of the most complex artifacts in existence and like the the computer neural nets we have nowadays are not simple either they they take you know massive amounts yes i I don't even know the correct order of number to say how many (laughs) bits they use up and they are not uh not understandable by us is due due to how complex they are they're simply much more uh, uh much more complex than the laws of physics for example which can be encoded in surprisingly few uh bits well no like that's you you the, the statement can be encoded in x number of bits does not have any mathematical meaning if you don't specify a programming language in which you're counting the number of bits um so you like you can't say that the the, the, the laws of the universe are generally encodable in such a small number of bits you need to say generally encodable in a small number of bits in this programming language um well, I think that's why he brings up the universal Turing machine because that one has simply, you know, bits of zero and one on off that can be manipulated into, you know, um, but there's an infinite there's an infinite number of universal Turing machines, all of which will use different ways of like like will have different description lengths. And the the core insight is that you can write a translator between any of them. You can write a translator between any programming language that is Turing complete and any other one. And in a Turing complete programming language, we will have an associated universal Turing machine. But of course, the space here is infinitely large. There isn't just like one universal Turing machine that is handed down to you. There's an infinite class, and Python, which has the which function, is an element of the uni- class of universal Turing machines. It's just like you can grab a universal Turing machine, and it's the one that has the which function. Um, uh, I guess I don't get. I feel like um, uh, I feel somewhat compelled by the idea that in general. Um, it is not clear to me which Turing machines will be simple to compute in my universe. Uh, yeah. I do nonetheless feel like my experience of my universe, I don't know about yours, is that uh, you know a couple of if statements and a couple of loops can be run with far less physical matter. Than- and I think that's a, that, that, that's, that's a really interesting inference to make. But it also has a really weird amount of circularity, where like you're trying to use Solomonov induction to determine what the rules what the physical rules of your universe are, and then you're trying to use your model of the physical rules of the universe in which you're in in order to determine which choice of universal Turing machine is the right one for Solomonov induction. And you're like, well, is that valid or not? My current answer is, I don't know. I feel confused about this. 
it does get pretty circular. Yeah, it's interesting. It reminds me of um, uh, Abram Dempsey's got a great post on Less Wrong that I can't think came out this year called An Orthodox Case Against Utility Functions, where he does um, make a case that a lot of the way we standardly think about utility functions and so on is uh, from the perspective of the universe. Like you have all of these different like laws of physics and arrangements of matter, and we have a function from them to um, states of utility. And he offers a quite different model where, um, which is from the point of view of somewhere or someone who is like part of a universe where they don't really understand the rules. And they're like gradually splitting up their world model into different high level chunks. Um, and it, it, I don't fully grok it. Uh, and potentially Ollie will grok it better than I do. Um, but it's, uh, it's something that I think tends tries to grapple with this question of some of the circularity of trying to say, I didn't come into the universe knowing which universe I was in. And therefore I didn't know which sorts of program languages were simple to run in this universe. Um, and as I have explored it a bit more, I have come to that sort of conclusion and I have fed that back into my expectation of which further, uh, hypotheses are simple versus complex. Um, yeah. The other thing that I think is really important to point out epistemologically about the Occam's Razor post is the um, fact that, like, I actually am not that sold on the complexity prior on its own. Like, the obvious other prior that you might want to have is the speed prior. Like, when you have, like, when you run a Turing machine or just a program, there are, like, two major facts about a program. Number one is, like, uh, how long it is. And number two is it, how much compute resources does it take? And in a bunch of places in the sequences, Eliezer basically asserts that, well, just the length of the program matters. But he doesn't actually argue for it very well. I think it's totally reasonable to be like, well, I want my programs. I like assign higher probability to the programs that like both give me the correct answer and give me the correct answer reasonably fast. Um, and actually, I just have a I have a speed speed penalty for any program that takes like aeons upon aeons, ten to the power of ten to the power of up arrow, up arrow, up arrow, three years to give me the right answer. Um, like well, like when, Douglas Adams' deep mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't it be basically I, uh, the length of the of the program is a function? Well, the other way around, the speed is the function of the length because, in at least in a universal Turing machine, you can only execute one instruction at a time. So the more instructions you have, the longer it'll take to run. Um, so are you familiar with the busy beaver number? Um, oh, uh, it's been a long time, but vaguely, yes. So busy beaver is the number that the, length, the amount of steps that a universal Turing machine of length n can take at most. So the longest running machine that terminates of a given complexity class. And those are really, 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 really big. <laughs> They're usually like in when, when people talk about fast growing sequences, the busy beaver number is among them. Where like for like I I don't know. I know that the busy that I think we know busy beaver three, but we like busy beaver four no longer fits on like our hard drives, and busy beaver five is like much, much larger than could ever be represented in the existing known universe. I might be totally wrong here by many orders of magnitudes. It's very easy to be off by many orders of magnitudes here. But um, tell me why it's called Busy Beaver, if you know. Uh, I don't actually know. I think it just kind of. I just imagine it as like I don't know. I yeah. I just have my head cannon, which is just that it's like I associate it with a small beaver that does a lot of work for a really long time, and it has a somewhat cartoony aesthetic, and it gets really exhausted after doing this for aeons and aeons. But I do not know whether that was the headcanon that people had when, when naming that. When yeah, I look at Wikipedia, it goes uh, uh, for, I think it, uh, there is a bunch of different ways you can set up the problem. But for the one where we have, for one of them with a two symbol, there's a two-state 
Turing machine, it can go for six. For a three state, it can go for 21. For a four state, it can go for 107. For a five state, it can go for 47,176,870. For a six state, it goes for 7.4 times 10 to the power of 36,534. Oh, and Jesus. then the seven state goes, gee, the seven state goes for 10 to the 10 to the 10 to the 10 to the 18,705,353. Yeah. <laughs> and then at which point Wikipedia gives up. <laughs> Can I just say a random silly thing about the speed prior? Uh, uh, Daniel Filan, who is uh, surprisingly now a housemate of mine. Well, I guess you maybe shouldn't be surprised. It's only for like the last month. Um, when I was at Oxford uh, doing my undergrad in my first year, he came and uh, he was looking for a place to stay and I gave him a space in my room for free for like a month. While he was visiting FHI, and he uh, he had a uh, a poster mailed, to, created and mailed to him in one of those like um, uh, tubes, you know, for a, a presentation because he'd just done some work on the speed prior. Um, and I think it arrived a couple months ago. <laughs> he it just, uh, it just never arrived to him, and it's been four years. And then I recently got an email saying some posters arrived for him. Wow. Uh, so anyway, his his uh, paper on the speed prior was the slowest piece of mail that he has ever received. <laughs> I order it from. I do not. Rec- I mean, I guess like overseas. Or to just I guess maybe off. maybe we should make updates about academia's speed or something. <laughs> so I I have a question about this. Um, like I didn't find it controversial that laws of physics are are. Uh, easier to uh to model on a computer than a human mind and so like i found that part relatively like i skimmed past it i was much more had a much harder time figuring out the the last part of this post which seems to be the opposite for you guys and maybe you can help <laughs> with it. Uh, it, it it says near the end here that uh if someone says the lady down the street is a witch she made the sequence come out zero one zero one zero one zero one zero one your ac- your accusation of witchcraft wouldn't let you shorten the rest of the message you would still mm-hmm. have to describe in full detail the data that the witch recaused. So even after you say witch, since you still have to describe the detail and full data, you have not compressed the total length of the message describing your observations by transmitting the message about witchcraft. You've simply added a useless prologue increasing increasing the total length. Uh, the real sneakness was concealed in the word it, a witch did it, a witch did what. Um, my question is, like, what what does this mean exactly? Why is the compression of the total length important? Mm. So um, I like going back to the... So we had a question of, like, okay, um, I show you three images, and you're trying to derive what the laws of physics are. And there's, like, a question of... And he said this thing of, like, okay, you need 27 bits of evidence in order to, like, hone it down from a set of 100 million um, million candidates. But what does it mean for an image to have 27 bits of evidence? It, like, obviously has many more, like an image, like, usually if it's, like, 1,000 by 1,000, will have, like, at least 100, well, I know, at least 1 million and probably at least 3 million because of, like, color information and various stuff like this and probably also gradients and stuff like this. So the way I would imagine it is, like, when you look at the first 10 pixels of the image, how good are you at, like, how, how much better are you at predicting, like, the rest of the image or, more concretely, like, the world, like the laws of physics that you're trying to predict? And you can check... And that, then after looking at the first 10 bits, you can ask yourself, what mess, what information content did that have? How many hypotheses did those rule out? So similar for the which one, you can ask you can look at the, the first four words and say, the lady down the street is a witch, she did it. And you can ask yourself, okay, after I heard those sentences, how good am I as a perfect Bayesian predictor 
at determining what the correct sequence is that like I'm trying to predict. Mm. And you hear those words and you're like, well, none. Yeah. I do not actually know. This has given me indeed zero information about it. And but if you and if you if you change it and say the sequence was X, the lady down the street is which she did it, and you ask yourself, okay, I first read the first the first like the the first ten characters of this of the sentence. How good am I at predicting the sequence? And you're like, well, I have the sequence. I that's it. I I'm it, I'm there. And then I give you more words, and you're like, well, okay, that clearly means that those words must be duplicates. They can't give me more information about the hypothesis earlier. Um, and if someone gave you just the sequence, you couldn't derive the lady down the street as a witch and she did it from that sequence. Yeah. Even though that's not, like, not, not a necessary requirement, you might have a, like, you, the, 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 the parts of your hypothesis don't necessarily need to be, like, correlated to each other. You could, um, but that's also, like, I do think that if it is usually the case that for good explanations, part of them will allow you to explain other parts of the explanations, but I think that has more to do with explanations than perfect Bayesian predictiveness. Um. I guess I think uh, I don't know if that's if I can maybe speak a little bit more practically to my experience or something. I think um, uh, often a good explanation helps me. Often I think what I implicitly mean by a good explanation is something I can think about, that I can use to think about uh, a phenomenon um, without using up all of my working memory slots or something. Um, you know, if you, uh, this is a very human ex- uh, answer or something, but um I can imagine like trying to get through a maze and you could be like, you need to go left, left, right, 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 left, left, right. And I'm like, okay, I'm not thinking about anything else for the next 10 minutes while I follow those sequence of instructions. Um, but then if you give me uh, just always, uh, you know, uh, use the left hand rule and you'll be able to like get out, which admittedly I think would be left, left, left. I'm not quite sure what it looked like, but I think that could like uh, help me think of it in a much simpler way whilst then being able to like think about other things at the same time. Um, I like that example. Yeah, I guess, uh, thanks. Um, I guess it's not a, uh, sorry, go for it. Uh, No, I was just saying, I I might steal that example at some point. Yeah, I think um, often uh, good math research often looks like this, where they're like, oh yeah, we had this real complex model, but I've just like turned it into a like, uh, yeah, I think, um, yeah, when like, uh, first time you try and understand something in linear algebra or something, you like, if I wrote it down in words or something, it would take me pages and pages and pages. And then you can just get it down to a point when you, if you have the right concepts, you just write like three lines or something. And you're like, oh yeah, I roughly get how the system works. And I can like manipulate these sort of symbols and these sorts of ideas with some others. Um, I don't know, Ali, do you have a better practical example? I feel like mine were either too abstract or... That kind of explains the programming language thing too. Yeah, yeah. Where if you were to like write out in English what this program was doing, or go levels down deeper if you're using Python, like, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I like starting to understand bits of it, <laughs> although I'm still I still feel like there's stuff going over my head. But I'm glad that we had you guys on for these sequences. <laughs> Great. Oh yeah, getting actually a text the other day that was just like, "Backups raising everyone is hired help." <laughs> <laughs> and I like it's like oh, how I could it be? I, I remember reading this and I like opened it and I was just like, "Oh yeah, that one." <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> I feel like I sort of missed the point on on this post because I have a I think a good working intuitive version of Occam's Razor, which is just like uh, I mean if I if I give you an explanation for how the engine of my car works, and then someone else gave you the engine the description of how the engine of my car works, and it was the same except they said and also little Im- invisible fairies push the pistons in addition hmm. to the uh, you know the, the combusting gasoline, like 
Occam's Razor would tell me, no, I'm going to take the one without the fairies because it has additional stuff on top of it that I don't need to explain this. Um, and and that, that even leaves aside the point that like the fairy thing is really complicated, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, and it's, and there's like another intu- uh, the kind of close by intuition is it just didn't even help me think about the thing dread the fairies never mind that i know that fairies are kind of magical it just like didn't i already understood the engine and i already understood how to interact with it fully or as, as well as i could and you like didn't help me by adding this extra thing to what i had to think about yeah but i think the the key thing that i i think this post does is it gives you the it allows you to handle the situations where well but like it's not impossible that they are fairies like not literally absolutely impossible but now you have to answer the question of well how impossible like, and that's actually a really hard question that, like, philosophy for, like, I mean, in some argument, like, some could argue still not, but, like, philosophy hadn't had an answer for, for, like, thousands of years. Um, we, like, post outcomes razor, and we were basically like, well, the simplest one seems like the best one, but we didn't have the language of probability theory, so we couldn't tell you how much is the simplest one the better one. And the, the thing that he says in this post is, well, he is com- very concretely. If the thing adds this many bits of information, then it's in a larger complexity class, and therefore each additional bit of information must cut the probability that you assign to that hypothesis into two. Um, and it's a very precise answer, and that's very nice. And because fairies is a very complicated additional piece of data that makes the probability much, much, much lower. But if somebody were to give, just give you a very slightly different explanation of, it, of an engine that maybe only is one or two bits longer, then you still have to assign substantial probability mass to that being right, if it fits all the facts as well. Okay, yeah, fair enough. I, I like that. Because you're right, I, I think I chose uh, a two out there example of the fairies, but um, I could, I well, could imagine... I it's really satisfying to combine those two things. Where, like, I think of great explanations as usually being, like, two separate phenomena. And now we have this thing where, like, oh, I have this example that makes it so, like, if I, if I posit a fairy thing, it seems like that's really, that's, that sounds really dumb. But if I posit a thing where somebody gives a separate explanation that's just a bit more complicated, it doesn't sound that dumb. And now we have a single formalism that explains why the slightly different explanation still has some probability mass, whereas the fairies has basically no probability mass. Basically, we kind of know that there is an co- exponential relationship between the number of additional bits and the probability penalty it needs to get. And that's like a really powerful intuition that I really like because it takes these kind of two phenomena that didn't exactly know how they were related and combines them into one really elegant explanation. I love it. Yeah. No, that, that's uh, a really nice way of putting it. Um, Yay. I was, <laughs> was going to segue us straight into... That's kind of like for me, Occam's Razor 2.0. Speaking of 2.0s, let's talk about Less Wrong 2.0. But <laughs> we've, oh, we've got to pay. <laughs> we do have to quickly say what post we're reading next time, though. Exactly. That's why it wasn't a good time to drop it. We've got to say what we're reading next. So. <laughs> uh, real quick, did anyone have last words before we move on? Nah, I'm good. Okay, uh, then for next time, the post we're going to be reading is How to Convince Me That 2 Plus 2 Equals 3. Ooh. and the bottom line <laughs> the uh that's such a great like setup for next week because anyone who's not read that is going to feel a bit shocked it reminds me of um uh this is a bit of a tangent but uh uh nick bostrom once went on the sam harris podcast um and uh sam harris went through nick bostrom they went through three papers by him um and there's such bizarre concepts and ideas in his papers and i remember the first paper was um it wasn't the great filter. I think his first paper was about the vulnerable world hypothesis, um, where he talked about um, uh, the need, the potential need for uh, certain amounts of global coordination. And it got Sam Harris to say the, the sentence, um, 
you know, if uh, China or North Korea or a global dictatorship came down the next day, uh, it's interesting now that amongst all the terror and horror, I would now, after reading your paper, see a silver lining to this, Nick Ostrom, which I was just imagining Sam Harris's readers going, what the heck did he just say? And then uh, his next paper was on uh, the simulation argument, which was uh, had Sam Harris like assigning like actual probabilities or something to the possibility that we're in a simulation with an external power that's like playing the game or something. And I just, and then he finally turned to Bostrom's third paper, uh, the, which is a great filter paper. And uh, he said, and so your next paper is about aliens. And I just imagined the audience going, I don't think I'm ready to hear what Sam Harris is about to say about aliens. <laughs> uh, so similarly, I just had the same feeling when you were like, next week, we're asking how you can convince me that two plus two equals three. And I was like, I don't want to know. <laughs> <I'm dead>. <laughs> <laughs> Brain damage, it's a... Well, no, there's a much better case than brain damage. <laughs> but we should use uh, Stephen's segue now to talk about more or less wrong posts, but of a different variety. That's right. So we, we we talked a little bit earlier about less wrong 2.0. And I remember getting the email and checking out the site when it first came out. Um, I guess uh, at the top level, what separates less wrong or is it separate? What is the difference between less wrong 2.0 and 1.0? And uh, yeah, let's start there. Yeah, I mean, the big thing is really just um, kind of when you look at the history of less wrong, I think, I mean, kind of Eliezer started writing an upcoming bias, he then moved to less wrong, he increased, like, created kind of a whole community on there. Um, But then sometime around 2012, 2013, he kind of disengaged and a bunch of other people kind of started interfacing substantially less with less wrong. And I think, like, pretty visibly over the years, like 2014, 15, um, and 16, things kind of declined, even just like in very boring and obvious ways. Like we just had a lot of spammers. At some point we had to turn off downvoting because we had someone who like was downvoting everyone, but we couldn't ban them because Reddit, like the, the thing was forked off of Reddit and the moderation tools weren't good enough. And so it kind of had all of these problems. And at some point um, me and me and Matthew Graves Vanover on, on Less Wrong kind of sat down and were like, well, we should fix this. And he was officially declared benevolent dictator of Less Wrong for life by Eliezer and a few other people. So so he kind of felt like it was his job to fix it. Um, so we sat down together and, and decided on a plan. Um, and I had I had, had run a small web design and web development company in Germany before and had studied computer science at UC Berkeley. Um, and so I seemed like I hadn't that much experience with like building building things like Less Wrong, but I also was like not a horrible programmer. Um, and so we just decided to kind of restart everything from scratch in terms of code and in terms of the underlying architecture and really build it into a site that that felt to me like would both enable to revive less wrong in terms of activity and trust in the system and the people being active there and technologically just make it so that, you know, it didn't completely break on mobile devices, which was a bit sad for a few years because the whole yeah. website was built on mobile was even a thing. Um, it looks so much more sleek and modern. It had that nice minimalist design. I got really excited when I saw it. Like even before yeah. everything was really working and it was just sort of the like landing page with some text and I was just like, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Graphics. Yeah, the, the UX on it is nice. It's it's pleasant to navigate, pleasant to look at, uh, which, you know, shouldn't be a huge filter to keep people away. But, um, you know, when, when it doesn't hurt to use, that's a big perk. <laughs> it makes it pleasant to use. It makes you like, you kind of breathe this like a sigh of fresh air uh, totally. after coming off of, I don't know, BuzzFeed or wherever else. It's just like, oh, man. clean and minimalist and you can see where all the things are and what they do. And it's like, ah, I want to hang out here. <laughs> oh, thanks. That's very nice of you to say. <clears throat> where, so this is 
it's completely random, but uh, where did you get that picture for the new Less Wrong, and what is it exactly? Is that a uh, yes. river? Uh, yeah, so I um, I think I discovered it uh, on probably Hacker News like many years earlier. It's um, a map of the Mississippi River that was created in the 1930s yeah, um, by Harold Fisker. Um, and he was just like a purveyor, uh, like he was like surveyed the land for, for the U.S. military at the time. But the really interesting thing about it that I like about it is that it's not just a map of the Mississippi River, but it's a map of the Mississippi River at different points in time. So it's like a map that like changes with the territory or it reflects the changing territory in ah. this really interesting way, where actually each one of the lines is the Mississippi River at different points in time. And I kind of really liked it as kind of a central metaphor for, you know, the whole map and territory metaphor was always really core to Lesbron, but also really liked it as like a map that goes beyond just like being this static thing that tries to capture the territory at one point, it tries to display how the ter- territory changed at other points. And I felt like it really highlighted and added some additional dimension to like the whole metaphor of the map and territory um, to Lesbron that like made it more excited, made me more exciting, um, more excited to include it as like one of the central branding elements. And it captures the metaphor of less wrong itself changing and becoming a new territory. Yep. I like that one. Yeah, the rivers are changing between uh, 1765 and 1944, which is quite a lot of time for a river. And most of the parts of it we've used are parts where it's like overlapping and looks kind of uh, somewhat artistic. Uh, I will warn you, uh, the map is much, much longer and gets very Lovecraftian. Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> just like to a level where we just cannot use it. <laughs> yeah, well, that seems fair, actually. <laughs> Will it damage my sanity to look at the full map? <laughs> <laughs> well, it does kind of attack the impermanent, like the concept of the permanence of rivers. It changes them to these these things that can just change and sometimes go in circles. It's very confusing. Um, so uh, this has been going on for, I guess, like four years now, and it's been growing over time. It looks like. Yeah, it's been great. Um, the um, like we currently have like pretty substantial growth. It depends a lot on which exact metrics you're looking at. Um, like in terms of page views, it's been something like thirty, maybe forty percent year of year over year growth. Um, in terms of comments, it's been more like eighty percent, seventy percent, like kind of almost doubling every year, a bit less than that. Um, and then also in terms of votes and various things like that, we're in terms of comments and posts, we're pretty close to what like the highest peak was Deadless Wrong ever had in 2011, kind of during the time when all the HPMOR discussion threads were going on. Um, yeah, I think uh, in- 2011 had about, um, I think, 2,800 posts on Less Wrong, and I think uh, 2020 has had 3,000. So this is the first year that's like crossed over. All right. So kind of in terms of like restoring Less Wrong, I feel like we've done a pretty good job there. And then Voting wise, we're still quite a bit, quite a bit below kind of all time historical peaks, um, which I mostly kind of set as a target. It's like I know that we can get less wrong to that kind of that kind of engagement in traffic pretty easily. Well, pretty easily means we at a time needed to make it a laser's full time project, which maybe isn't that easy. Um, but <laughs> um, seems at least humanly achievable. Um, and so I think we've been making a lot of good progress. And this year has been great because well, everyone has been stuck at home, and so they couldn't they. They just started reading Less Wrong a lot more. And so that's one of the small silver learnings that I have for, for this year. Um. So it sounds a lot of of the draw of the new Less Wrong is the awesome curation that you guys are doing. And so I wanted to ask you about like some of your favorite posts. Oh, um, well, uh, one of the things we've done in the terms of curation, as uh, we're going to chat about, I guess, a bunch, is the, uh, the fact that we've turned some of the best stuff on the new Less Wrong into a book set, um, which uh, we... Uh, 
yeah, as I said, it seems one part and parcel of trying to reward some of the best stuff. Um, I could happily tell you some of my best posts, favorite posts from the book. Um, Absolutely. Please do that. Sure. Um, Actually, wait, before you do that, tell us what, since we, the reason we got you on here was because of the book, but I don't think we've actually talked about what the book is on the podcast yet. Wait, is this so, uh, kind of print media? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> New technology. Um, so like how do we look at it? Uh, yeah, we interviewed a bunch of like users and like what would uh, make them feel motivated about like writing, what was motivated them to write the great stuff, what would motivate them further. Um, and several people were like, I'd love it if I was in a book, like a physical book that was like published and stuff. Um, and so this has been a project I've like wanted to do for quite a while. Um, we also wanted some sort of longer term feedback loops on the site. You know, I think when you post to social media, all of your sort of engagement happens in the next sort of like one to three days. And then that thing sort of falls into the sort of uh, memory hole history. Um, whereas hopefully in science, this is not how the best papers work or something. The best papers grow in like how much readership they get over time and like uh like are picked up and like read by the entire next generation um and so unless wrong it's still the case that we do better than that but it's still the case that um you know a lot of the engagement i have with the post happens in the sort of week where it gets uh published uh, and a lot of the readership happens then as well um it's not fully true actually i think a lot of old stuff like certainly the sequences and legacy content gets quite a lot of reading um but uh so uh, what we've instigated uh, is an annual review process, which we're currently in the midst of the second one. And so in the annual review, we um, have a two-week period for nominations where you go through the posts of the year that we're reviewing and you say, you click nominate and you just write a short explanation of why you're nominating it uh, to potentially be in the book. Um, that's a two-week period. Uh, then we have a month-long review period where people get to write, where people are encouraged to write reviews of the stuff. And people have written pretty great reviews last year. Um uh, but the nominations is especially a section I really love because uh, we just got to read people. I, I just we don't get to see these comments very often, but we get to see these comments where people say, "This totally changed my uh, perspective on this issue," or "This reading this post changed like my relationship with my father for the better," or uh, "This post um, I just thought about it consistently and I've linked to it like dozens of times." Um, and I think that's not only like uh, great to hear about how the site's working, but I think it's also really great feedback for the writers to go, "Oh wow, that's." something that's happening is when I write on Lesser. Um So we have the review and then we have a vote and we use quadratic voting, which is a cool uh, setup popularized by Vitalik Buterin and uh, Glenn Vile. Um, and then uh, um, and this is the first year I've tried it and I tried to make something that's very um, uh, distinctive and like has a coherent vision behind it. So I took basically roughly the top 44 posts from that vote. I think there were about hundred posts that uh, got voted and I took the top 44 and we've turned them into this set of books um, sort of built around some key themes um, and we tried to make them very beautiful and we tried to like, um, uh, make them something you'd be proud to be written, published in. Um, uh, the five themes of the book are, uh, epistemology is the first one. It all starts with the epistemology, uh, agency, the sort of notion of rational agency and being an agent in the world, uh, coordination of having groups of agents, uh, curiosity, which is the first virtue of rationality and alignment, which is about, um, being able to align other agents with your own. Uh, cognition and value function, which we kind of care a bunch about because AIs are an issue, and we're trying to build them. Um, is there one book per per theme? Yeah, it's five books. They're all uh, pocket sized um, because empirically, this was the size of book that our beta testers actually found they read. Uh, we would like we printed them in a bunch of different sizes, and I like took them to parties and such. And people would look at the big hardbacks that were kind of nice, nicely formatted, nicely edited, and they'd go, "Oh." 
that makes sense that that exists. And then they'd look at these four by six tiny books um, that were not well formatted and the text was a bit gray and the line height was awful. Which to be clear, we fixed. It's not a selling point. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the time, that's what we had. And people just kept coming back to them at the party and just reading a couple chapters. And I was uh, really kind of surprised by that. Um, even though the internals of it were not, at the time, were just not very well designed. Um, and so, yeah, this was like a sign that uh, this was a sort of book that, you know, many books are meant to look good on bookshelves. And we've tried to make books that look good on bookshelves, but we also wanted them to actually be read. Uh, and my own experience with many books is I buy very beautiful books that I intend to read and uh, I don't often. <laughs> and so um, we tried to make them very unimposing, whilst nonetheless kind of beautiful. Um, and so I ended up splitting it into five little books. Um, each one fits in my pocket or in uh, uh, Elizabeth's purse, who's a housemate of mine. Um, and uh, yeah, um, that's roughly what the books are. Uh, I could say more about them. I'm curious if you have parts of it you'd be interested in hearing about. How many thousands of words per book on average would you say, and how many posts per book? Oh, um, it's about 10 posts a book. Okay. Um, and each post generally several thousand words, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, I think a total of five books add up to something like 600 normal pages. I think that's roughly what I... Seven, 700, 750. That's 750 of the slightly smaller pages, which that's actually doesn't point. make sense. So I think it adds up to about 600 pages in total. Um, so something in that range. Um, yeah, and uh, pulling it back to bets earlier on, uh, I had a bet with a teammate of mine about how many he would sell because I, I don't know we've not uh, the Lesseron community has not sold books of this type before. Um, I think Elias has sold some books and Miri has sold some books, um, but these have tended to be uh, shorter um, and often Kindle or uh, print on demand that Amazon offers, and these are selling at like five dollars or less or something, or somewhere in one to ten dollars. Um, whereas this is like a you know. Um, it's got a lot of color in it. It's been uh, printed uh, by like professional press, um, and these are more expensive. Um, so, oh, uh, so this you have an actual print run of these? Yeah, we did an actual print run, which of course cost uh, lots of anxiety because we were constantly we were really uncertain about how many we were supposed to print. Um, yeah, how many did you print? So we initially asked them to print. We wanted to print five hundred books because we were like, I'm not sure how many are going to sell. And as I say, my teammate bet. Um, that we would not sell 200 by the end of the year. I had a one-on-one bet with him. It was only for $10, but you know, um, that we'd not sell 200 by the end of the year. Uh, we announced them for pre-order, I think, last Tuesday. No, not, not the most recent Tuesday, but the one before. Um, and on the first day, I think we sold 300, and so far we've sold 1,800. Nice. It's been great. Wait, so now we're asking for a print run that is an order of magnitude larger than the initial print run that we had asked for. We're now doing 4,000. Um, yeah, uh, which is quite surprising and outside several of my teammates 90 percent confidence intervals <laughs> yeah that is a damn good feeling holy crap <laughs> um how yeah. many years do these posts span is it like the since uh, less wrong 2.0 started so the full first full year of content from less wrong 2.0 is 2018 and these are the best posts of 2018 in that year's review uh, oh, got- so we haven't even reached the 2019 posts yet oh no we're reviewing them right now as we as we speak I hate to confess it, but I briefly looked at Less Wrong and people are nominated stuff since we started the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so we sold 1,800. And uh, I think the rule of a rule of thumb we saw on the internet was your first week of sales is probably half your first quarter sales. So like maybe that's... We sold in the first week, I think about 1,400 or so, 15. 1,500. So something between 3,000 in the first quarter and then kind of hopefully like hasn't toting around 4,000. 
Um, but if we have to do another print run, you know, there are worse problems to have in life. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, the uh, press was quite shocked by our sales. They were like, yeah. what? you want an order of magnitude more books? All right. <laughs> uh, they had to be pretty happy about that too. I, you, I'm assuming you got a price discount for volume. Yeah, the, oh, the yes. Oh Printing is really horrible. Like the the unit price for us went from um, twenty dollars per print cost to seven dollars per print cost. So the last five hundred marginal books cost us like four dollars, and the first five hundred marginal books would have cost us like forty five dollars per piece or something like that. Yeah. It's it's all about volume and publishing because once you have it set up, you can just run the presses as much as you want. Yeah, yeah. Until it just gets to the price of like raw materials. Yeah. So but, yeah. You know, then you're stuck with a warehouse of thousands of books, which you will never sell, mm. <laughs> unless you're you guys, in which case you sell them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, of course, no one's actually got the books yet because this is only just you know this is the last two weeks, and so I'm very excited. Uh, we promised everyone who bought them by I think it was in the first week that we get them to them by Christmas. Um, and so I'm very much looking forward to everyone getting the books and hearing feedback on them. I'm sure people will be like, these are actually small. Where did you say this? I guess it's the <laughs> sentence of every, the first sentence of every bit of marketing about it. But I, I don't know what people will say. I'm really sort of yeah, looking forward to it. I think they will love it. Um, yeah. I tried to make something people would love and I didn't know whether people would um, want it or not, but uh, I've been pleased to find out that many do. Yeah. I've also just been really happy about uh, our printer. There's this, I don't know whether you know about this. There's Stripe Press. So there's Stripe to people who like um, who, who who build payment infrastructure. And for some reason, they built a publisher, a book publisher, Stripe Press, um, where they just publish books about topics that they feel are particularly important. And their books are absolutely amazing um, in terms of print quality and just like unit cost and all kinds of stuff. They recently published um, Richard Hamming's The Art and Science of Engineering um, and um, that book is absolutely beautiful. So we were like, man, we would like to make beautiful books that are as good as those. Wait, what printer did they use? What are their supply lines? Luckily, one of our friends just knew someone who worked there. So we just called them up, asked them about their supply lines and their printers, and then we just stole their supply lines and printers. Now we're using the exact same things as they do, um, which which I'm very glad to Stripe Press for, for saving us all the work of finding and selecting all the right people here. Yeah, I think often in the nonprofit space, it is... Uh, often rare to find someone who has attempted to solve similar problems to you. And it's always like in the for-profit space, like people are like, oh, I don't want competitors often. Uh, but I feel like in the non-profit space, I'm often like, uh, there are occasionally other people that like build web forums or something, or, uh, or in fact, there's uh, people who don't like our version of Lesserung and they have built their own UI of Lesserung. <laughs> um, and and I think often you'd be like, oh, competitors. But we, I'm just like, wow, you put in hours of effort to try and solve the same problem as me. I am fascinated to see the way you've solved this problem and I pre- and I learned from it. And similarly, I'm very appreciative that Stripe Press, you know, um, has done a lot of the parts of building a publisher in this like present day era uh, that primarily works online and like tries to make very beautiful books that you primarily buy online. You don't see in bookstores and there's a lot of different design problems that they have faced. Um, so yeah, I really appreciate all the, that they have done this. That's awesome. So- yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Stephen. Oh, that was it. Oh, okay. Uh, so I was, yeah, wondering, could each of you give give us one or two of your favorite posts from the books? Yeah. Um, I think my favorite po- f- essay from the book is probably Naming the Nameless. Um, it's a very weird essay written by Sarah Constantin, um, 
that I don't know whether she really knows what to do with it. It's um, it's a, it's an essay that's um, primarily about like what aesthetics are and how they work and what kind of influence they have in our thinking. Um, and it's really sparked a um, when I read it two years ago. It kind of had this very very large effect on me because it it helped me navigate something that I now consider something like the tyranny of system two or something like that um, is a is a is a common um, common common phrase I use in my internal internal monologue kind of where in many environments um, I feel like I'm being pushed towards type of reasonings reasoning that are very, very verbal and very explicit. And I actually notice how large fractions of my thinking actually don't really go through that. And how in particular large fractions of like what are historically thought of as the rationalist aesthetic have fallen into this mistake of just like not having good art, not having good intuitive handles for concept and instead often relying on things like relatively dense mathematics that is useful for verifying things, but not actually very useful for explaining things. And the post really goes into a bunch of analysis of, of society and a bunch of common cultural trends that try to point towards the effect of aesthetics on different parts of society. And I think it's less the specific arguments that it made, but more that it kind of like made it so that I could have the handle of aesthetics and its effect on thinking and its effect in, on culture as like a really specific element that I could think about and reason about and analyze its effect on my life. Um, uh, but is that in the epistemology book then? I could have imagined also putting it in coordination, but I think it, it fits fits slightly better into epistemology. Yeah, she uh, she has the phrase. Well, cool. um, yeah, well, uh, uh, I was going to say we'll be sure to put links to all. Sure, these she has the phrase. I think. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I guess neither of us is going to speak. Someone else. No, I'll, all right, I'll go. Um, she has the phrase in it. Uh, uh, I don't know if you know the phrase double crooks, which is uh, a technique CIFAR developed for um, yeah. helping go disagreements work, which is about um, not merely finding things you disagree on, but finding cruxes of your disagreement. So um, finding a thing that if you change your mind on, it would change your mind on the overall argument and trying to find issues that are cruxes for both of us so that... Um, we're always arguing about a thing that could change either of our minds. Um, and this is often a very productive way of having disagreements. Um, and she says something like, uh, double cruxes are great, but what I'm looking for here is something like an aesthetic double crux where people can try and like uh, share part of their aesthetics and, uh, share what would change how they feel about those aesthetics and try and have that sort of disagreement and sort of elicit, um, you know, some of the nameless things that are in, uh, affecting our decisions and are affecting our beliefs. Um, huh. Now is, is it, possible to change your aesthetic through argumentation i actually recall um i'm pretty sure it's not apocryphal you know i'm pretty sure it's a story of uh i think it was two cfar staff members one of them who likes eating onions and one of them who did not like eating onions <laughs> and uh you know i'm on the second side and they and you know Same. the one who did not, not like onion hairs unite <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love onions and they're good for you um and and so they tried you know they sat down and said, what do you like about eating onions and they tried, uh, I, I wasn't present for the conversation, but I imagine they talked something about the taste or something about the like feeling ahead in the mouth and um, encourage the other one to try taking a bite and paying attention to those things. Um, and I think overall the other person, I'm going to, I'm going to use the phrase learned to enjoy eating onions or, or felt that they could appreciate why the person would 
enjoy eating onions and could imagine themselves becoming that sort of person uh, in a way that they did not expect going in that they would be able to get out of such a conversation. And I think this is um, a style of conversation I've tried to have more and more where someone like doesn't um, like a decision or acts in a certain way or something. And I'm trying to say what feels salient to you about this and communicate both there and my sort of aesthetic toward the thing or feeling toward the thing. Um, That's really cool. I'm going to have to read that relevant to some stuff that my partner and I have been talking about where and also the like Guild of Servants uh just did their aesthetics class and or it was like nice. just about how to uh cultivate a sense of style like fashion style or just like I guess the accessories you surround yourself mm. with etc can you tell me Jace what the Guild of uh, Servants is can I uh <laughs> <laughs> apparently it's a secret society I don't know if I'm allowed Okay, I do, have, I do have to say on the topic of secret societies, um, I've been in the little restaurant community for uh, almost a decade now, um, and I have been waiting for the sort of owl or some form of male to invite me to the Beijing conspiracy. Um, <laughs> and here you are. Yeah. Um, and so uh, if you would like, you can just uh, turn all of your questions into probabilistic estimates, and I will answer them. Uh, if at any point you would like me to give a probabilistic estimate, I am ready and I'm willing. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, the Guild of Servants was described in episode uh, 117 when two of the founders, uh, David and Alex, came on. Um, it's, uh, I think, in a couple of sentences, the goal is to curate actual life betterment skills that actually work, um, which uh, for me, I kind of encompass everything that actually works into the umbrella of rationality. Um, in addition to uh, in a broader way, solving the the PR problem that uh, rationalists occasionally run into. Um, I wouldn't say it, it's that's even a, a primary goal, but the one one long term goal is to have uh, like large community impacts uh, where the the people who get to claim responsibility say yes, we're with the rationalist community via the Guild of Servants. Nice, interesting, nice. But if you're interested in more, like I said, check out episode one seventeen of our podcast. Which was just like, uh, I guess, you know, bi-weekly. It would have been sometime this summer. Mm-hmm. I listened to it. So, Ben, did you have a uh, a post you really liked? Ooh, all right. I think um, I really love the Babylon Prune stuff. Uh, so it's three posts uh, that come from a sequence called Babylon Prune by uh, Alec Jash. He's a great writer on the site. In fact, just two weeks ago, I wrote some, uh, some of the best stuff this year. Um, but Babylon Prune uh, is... Um, just again, another very simple model of how um, his thinking works, which is that, um, he, you know, uh, similar to like brainstorming and then like uh, picking the best ideas. It's like coming up with quite a lot of like strings or like ideas or sentences or something, and then just picking the best ones to say or something. Um, you can see the similarity in Scrabble where like people try and like start with smaller like sub sentences, sub words from what they've got and build it up and open. Um and he felt like a lot of his rationalist training had been in, like on his um, prune skills of being able to go, this idea isn't good enough. This idea isn't good enough. This idea isn't good enough. And, you know, he'd like listen to people say such eloquent and interesting things. He's like, oh, I understand those. Why don't I say interesting and eloquent things? But his sort of internal setup just kept whatever he thought to say, it would just go, not good enough, not good enough. And then he'd just sort of not be able to say anything. Um, and so it was. it's given me a sort of tools about um, practicing having good filters, uh, having good generative and filtering processes. Um, it's in fact, led to quite a, 
a lot of um, practical use. Uh, in fact, just recently, Jacob Lagros, who um, uh, has been collaborating some with Less Wrong and uh, is the primary other person who uh, is responsible for this book set being built, um, uh, did a great Babel challenge on Less Wrong, where uh, for once a week, for seven weeks, he would say, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to babble 50 solutions to the problem I present you. And he had great problems like... Um, how to light a candle. How to light a candle was the last one. You need to give me 50 solutions to how to light a candle or how to get to the moon or how to hide a notebook so that no one will find it. Um, or oh, I think how to, hide, how to hide a pen that it will only be found by a specific person like 100 years later or something. Very interesting. <laughs> um, and it was great. A bunch of less wrongers who I think have never written comments before went, I think I can do this. And they came up with such such inventive and creative explanations um, or, or solutions to the thing. And obviously a ton of insane ones. Um, and uh, this is now just like a technique that like me and Jacob and Ollie and people use around like work and the office and Slack where they're like, oh, we have a problem. All right, uh, here's 10 solutions. Just, I will babble 10 solutions, um, which I think has been previously something we've been kind of scared to like say a lot of bad ideas or something. Um, but I think it's been a good kind of practice. Um, so anyway, yeah, Al Jesh writes some really poetic stuff about um, different filters he finds in his own mind, different levels of prune and different gates and ways of increasing your babble and ways of uh, uh, incre- improving your prune and this sort of concept. But yeah, I know it's permeated my thinking a lot over the last three years. I think prune is uh, kind of self-explanatory, but by babble, does that mean just generating lots of options and not like without self-criticism? Yeah, I think uh, his opening example is, I think, how babies learn to speak, which is not that they like imitate as much as they just produce a lot of noise and they notice what sort of gets positive feedback or something. They keep, also, like, the really interesting thing about babies that, that is relevant to the Babylon Prune analogy here is that babies can produce all phonemes that are present in modern languages. They just like babies are better at pronouncing the TH in English than I am. Um, and then as they learn the language of the world around them, they lose the ability to pronounce certain phonemes and prune down the set of phonemes to the set of things that are actually being used. And they generally produce just a lot of noise and then prune it down to the subset of noises that are correlated with a certain language. And that's like a very interesting way in which like you can imagine going about language where you can imagine doing the opposite thing, where babies don't know how to produce any phonemes and then learn iteratively added ones that belong to a certain language that they're surrounded by. Um, That's fascinating. I now kind of wish we had a language that just used all the phonemes so that we wouldn't lose any of them. Yeah. Someone who's been struggling for like six years with this horrible TH in this language. (laughs) Um, I would also be glad about this. German doesn't have the TH sound then, huh? It does not. We only have the rolling R, which I now have taken myself to repeatedly using in lots of words and as various expressions of emotions in order to slightly compensate for my inferiority of not being able to pronounce all of your phonemes by demonstrating that I can pronounce phonemes that you cannot pronounce. I'm kind yes. of bummed you didn't roll one R when explaining that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I tried really hard, but it was hard to, to find to find one. <laughs> Americans oh. do find the rolling R beautiful. Oh, <laughs> well, he just makes that noise when he goes into rooms now. By the way, he just like, <laughs> yeah, sorry. people have different catchphrases and all these is just. Um, it sounds like the, yeah, I was about to say it sounds like the noise you you make when you want to get pets. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he does. Yeah, yeah, he uses his girlfriend the most. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there's a bunch of other uh, essays in the book. Uh, one other one I would. Uh, want to mention because of how much I like it is uh, an untrollable mathematician um, 
which is uh, a cartoon. Um, in fact, yeah, the, I guess the Curiosity book as a whole uh, is itself a curious book. I can't believe I just said that. Uh, but it um, is about, it's not about curiosity. Uh, like curiosity, we care about a lot because as a motive, it's very pure and truth seeking and like doesn't, and is like, uh, there's that great Eliezer line, um, a burning itch to know is higher than a solemn vow to of caring about you or to pursue truth. Um, and so I just love people getting real curious on that's wrong, just about sort of any subjects. And they often find very fascinating things and they do great reasoning. Um, and so it's just a collection of essays of people getting curious about some aspect of the world. Every essay has got a title, which is a question like Scott Alexander's got is science slowing down. And uh, Martin Sustrick has got um, what motivated rescuers during the Holocaust. He was trying to understand the sort of motives of the people that like did very sort of heroic things. Um, and uh, Abrams is uh, Abram Dembski is the author of An Untrollable Mathematician, um, who's a researcher at Miri. Uh, he was trying to get curious. He was he was curious about um, this a complicated relationship between probability theory and logic. They have a weird um, pr- probability theory. Classically, assumes a certain amount. Of, sorry, assumes logical omniscience. It assumes you know the consequences of your beliefs such that you can just do a simple update of like, oh, I have now seen this evidence, therefore I can say that these beliefs are false and these beliefs are true, and I can rebalance those probabilities. Whereas um, formal logic, you never know all the consequences of your beliefs. Like as a bounded rational agent in like with limited compute and limited time, I cannot compute every logical implication of everything that I know. Um, this would just uh, require a lot more compute and time that I have access to. Um, and... Something, something, girdle. Uh, there's, um, and so there's a setup where um, you're trying to like weigh these things where each one of them is like, yeah, it actually has a very beautiful uh, diagram, I think, of some scales trying to weigh probabilities, but each probability is a plant that is growing like quickly. And you're like, I don't know which of these plants is going to go quicker. Uh, I don't know which way it's going to finally end up. And one of the issues he has noticed is that um, in principle, I can start telling you. If I went to troll you and you were like this mathematician trying to dutifully combine logic and probability theory, I could keep telling you uh, consequences of your beliefs, logical implications of your beliefs, but weigh on one side of these scales. Uh, and I could repeatedly do that to make you balance these scales out. In principle, any balancing I like, I could keep telling you facts that are implications of what you believe or logical facts um, where you go, oh, huh, that's a good point. That makes me think slightly more likely that this statement is false. And I can end up in principle getting you anywhere on this set of weighing scales. Um, and so his question is, is, is this necessary? Can I come up with a, a way of thinking of, of combining logic and probability that doesn't have this trollable nature? Um, I won't tell you, necessarily tell you the conclusion. Or maybe I will. But uh, it's, a, just, um, it's just a fun cartoon that ends up just very conversationally and with beautiful sort of diagrams, just telling you these little interesting things about logic and how it works and how probability works and how some of him and his friends got curious about it and how they were on a train together talking about it. Um, and so it's been one of my favorite posts that came out in uh, 2018. Um, and I really, I also just like the idea of someone reading the curiosity book going, Oh, I think I know what's happening to me in this book. We had is science slowing down. We had what motivates rescuers during the Holocaust. These are people doing some like, research and writing it up and then you turn the page and it's just a cartoon <laughs> like there's no chapter headings anymore or something you're just in the middle of a hand-drawn cartoon that's just chatting about girls theorems and so on um so yeah it's one of my favorite essays in the book i really like it awesome yeah i also really like it 
in some sense, I, I want to bring this up point because we hear the Bayesian conspiracy. Um, I think the the biggest change and the most interesting thing that, from my perspective, has happened in in kind of the development of theoretical rationality in the last. Oh, watch what you say here, Oliver. This is territory. <laughs> the fact that um, I think just like I moved away, and I think a lot of other people I, I, I respect have moved away quite substantially from the classical Bayesian model of rationality. Um, because like actually just like the the concerns around being a bounded agent just actually have all of this these these very substantial obstacles that make reasoning like that 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 make it very hard to even think about what it would mean to reason like a Bayesian. Like Bayesians are these really, really weird things where I think think Abram said it really nicely. I don't know whether it was an uncontrollable mathematician or in one of his other comics, um, where he said that uh the fact about a Bayesian is that a Bayesian must have the ability to represent the complete territory as a like within their brain as a single hypothesis. And like in order to just represent a single hypothesis about the universe, you need to be able to have a hypothesis in your brain or in your in your representation, in your model of the world that is as complicated as the full universe. And that itself is like a very weird statement to make about any object. It like, well, how would I even make that statement about something that is embedded in the universe? Does it have a perfect self-model? Then you end up with all of the kind of classical problems with like, well, how can you have a perfect self-model? Can you predict what you will do in the future? What does it even mean to make a choice in that context? And all kinds of other weird logical confusions that happen. Um, and so just just in order to make a slight jab at the Bayesian conspiracy, in some sense, um, I have substantially moved away from, from thinking of the art of rationality as being the art of becoming a better Bayesian and think that now there is a much much more richer and more complicated art here that we have started to discover in a lot of the writing that is kind of exemplified by, by Abrams' untroubled mathematician and embedded agency and a bunch of other things in that space. Are you one of these post-rationalists that is trying to schism us? <laughs> no, no, no worries. <laughs> I, saw, I saw someone on Twitter the other day say um, uh, the dirty secret of all the post-rationalists is that they still read less wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Uh. <laughs> um, no, I, I, the the thing that has made me excited about this is that we have found traction in a theoretical and grounded um, extension of our out of rationality into this domain of bounded computation. I think I felt really stuck for many years between like two thousand like thirteen and two thousand sixteen or seventeen, where I kind of knew that well, okay, but I'm not a perfect Bayesian. But I didn't really have any traction. I didn't know what alternative model I would even start to consider. And it's not like we're that much farther ahead. But over the last three years, I feel like I've really gotten some traction in what, how I can formally think and how I can rigorously think about a system that is computationally limited and tries to is not log- logically omniscient. Um, and I think that kind of, if I, I don't want to really bash on the post-rationalists, but I think that kind of is different, makes me think that I wouldn't necessarily describe myself as being in a post-rationalist tradition because I'm still interested in a grounded kind of formal rigorous handling of the relevant like philosophical and um, epistemological puzzles. And I think we, we have successfully broken into that space. And now I feel like there's this richness of new interesting things to do in that space. Um, that feel very much in the realm of building another probability theory as opposed to deeply meditating and uncovering the real truth that was inside of my soul all along or something, something into a straw man of post-rationalists. Um. Oh. Well, I, I am, I mean, you already had me sold on this book series. I was planning to buy it an hour ago, but <laughs> I am now like even more interested and slightly worried about some intellectual contagion that may take me over. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but I'm going to read this anyway and take that risk. Well, change the name from Bayesian Conspiracy to Embedded Agency Conspiracy, then I will I will take credit. Um, <laughs> it's still an awkward name. It is really not a good name. Don't do that. It would be horrible for your branding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we yeah, just we just launched some merchandise. We can't go changing the name now. Yeah. Right? Although the merch just, doesn't actually the, say the Bayesian Conspiracy, forget. does it? No, it's just the art. But, you already yeah. fought ahead. Ready mind um yeah i think uh the relevant parts of this i, I don't expect we'll uh, uh my epistemic state is not that we will like we will not look back on bayesianism it was, we will not be like ah that was a mistake we will uh there are certain parts of the formalism that i think do not apply to agents uh that are bounded and i think uh these confusions are best uh pulled out in another one of abram's essays which he co-wrote with scott garabrand in the uh which is partly in the book but is in fact itself the length of i think two books, so we didn't include the whole thing, uh, which is his embedded agency sequence, where he just starts, and I think it's uh, in a very Feynman-esque way, you know, this is this is quite complex and philosophical and mathematical questions, um, but he just sort of draws a couple of cartoons and diagrams, and you get a pic, you go, oh, yeah, I think I get what he's trying about. Um, uh, where he points to the sorts of confusions we have about what it means to be a rational agent, um, and the current places where our theory does not uh, fully explain fully account for some of the actual fa- problems we face. Um, I think a lot of the classical ways people have used certain parts of Bayesian uh, probability theory, um, his fundamental sort of contrast he makes in the book is between uh, a, a, an agent that is playing something like a video game, where the agent is not part of the video game, they're outside the video game. The things that happen in the video game cannot affect the agent's mind, and the agent in principle could understand everything that's going on in the video game within its own mind. Um, if you imagine just the relative, like where the agent is, in fact, computationally got way more compute, so they can think about all the possible states of the video game. Um, and then he like contrasts this with uh, an agent which is a part of the video game, trying to understand how the video game works, how thinking works when, uh, or what it means to think when, and how what it means to take actions when their actions can change their own brain and change how they think. Um, what it means to have other agents inside of them to be built up of smaller sub-agents. Um, and I think some parts of the like formalism that we use of Bayesian probability doesn't uh, make some assumptions about these, that you are more like the agent that is playing the video game than you are the agent that is part of the video game. Um, and so they're like sort of wandering through the space and picking up little interesting curiosities and tools and trying to like um, adapt the formalism to better match the actual situation we find ourselves in. Um, but yeah, uh, I think, I uh, yeah. It still seems pretty, it's totally pretty Bayesian. It's just, uh, it does have some interesting changes to the formalism. Or hopefully will, when we figure it out. <laughs> and all this is still ongoing on Less Wrong 2.0 right now. Yeah, yeah, just very recently, like, Scott Garabrand released this giant sequence around Cartesian frames. That was him trying to think a lot about, like, how to be an embedded agent and how they can think. Um, and I don't... I, I'm I myself still have a, a variety of hours over the next few months set aside to like engage with it deeply. But it's it's really it seems like a pretty exciting full formalism that has been presented within the last like two months that um is making some really, really interesting progress here. Like we had a very cutting edge of like really philosophy of all time. Um So I have two questions for people who are pressed on time. Uh the first being I'm assuming these are included in the, uh, is it weekly uh, emails you send out that uh, have the best of in them? Um, yeah. We're usually sending out free emails. And the emails are literally just the post. Like We take the full post and we'll just send it to you in your email. And there's no advertisement, usually no announcement. It's just the post. And 
surprisingly, we've gotten even our LaTeX to render OK in Gmail. <laughs> I <was sorry. laughs> um, so so um, that's really, you can, you can press the subscribe button um, when you sign up for an account, and then you get free posts per week in your email. Um, and you don't even have to go to us wrong if you want to read all of them. And the follow-up question is, um, if you want to like read the back conversation here, but you don't want to you know, go through everything, you just want the highlights, is there some place to find just those posts that have been sent out in email as like the best of read these? Yes. So if you go to the front page, you will see at the very top of the post list a set of posts that have a small star right next to them. You'll probably see three of them because we show three of them at any given time. If you click on the star, you will be taken to a full list of all the curated posts over the last three and a half years that we've compiled. And that really is the first place I would send anyone if they are interested in seeing what like has happened, what interesting things have happened on Lathron 2.0. Uh, although my first place is now this book set, uh, which is also <laughs> pretty good. I actually realized, I didn't say, um, I think I talked about the book set from the perspective of like rewarding the authors. Um, but I think from the perspective of the reader, the book set is just a place to really sit with the ideas and engage with them that is not plugged into your distraction machines and the internet. Where you're not like got 17 tabs open, and, you, and every second you're reading it, you're going, "Is this better than clicking on the next tab?" Okay, I'll continue reading the next sentence. You know, this is not, not a comfortable reading experience in such ways. Um, this is a book that you can just, you know, walk to a park and you can not have your laptop or phone, and you can open it and you can sit with the ideas and sort of take them in a more uh, in your own pace and uh, think through them at your own speed. Um, so that's one of the things I hope that people. I hope there's a lot of people that have not followed for whatever reason. They don't have time to check it every week. Uh, they do not like read every email that we might send them. But who doesn't want to read the very best stuff that we like? I think has been written the last wrong in the last year or so, in 2018. And um, I think you can take this and you can sit. And I hope to see people like go, "Huh, I now feel like I actually am up to date with what happened in that year and some of the best ideas." And here is a bunch of ideas I've had based off of those. That's awesome. Wonderful. And I'll, I'll note too that if you have an existing account that you made before the newsletter or the weekly uh, email was an option, you just go to your account settings and you can click a box to sign up for it. So Yeah, yeah. And there's other ways if, you, if you're an RSS person, there's RSS feeds, et cetera, et cetera. So um, how can we get this? Because we haven't heard the details on that yet. Oh, great. Good. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, current way to get it is to go to less wrong. So we're currently in the pre-order stage. We're still, uh, we're just printing, they're printing as we speak. Um, uh, you can go to less wrong front page and you can see the books at the top. Uh, if you're on desktop, you'll need to hover over and you can see the pre-order button there. Um, they're $29, uh, which is what we've determined is the amount of money we need to make this thing not net negative, hopefully. Um, and then, uh, yeah, if you want to see more details about them, there's a learn more, there's an FAQ. You can uh, see totally some of the images inside. We've, um, we've redesigned uh, basically every image in the book to fit the aesthetics of the books. Um, you know, uh, I think the images, especially in some of like Scott's essays are like crucial for understanding it. Um, and so, yeah, we've redesigned all of those and you can have a look inside and hopefully you'll uh, find those attractive. <laughs> I know you're going to get this question a lot and I assume you're going to hate getting it a lot, but is this available on Amazon? The answer is it will be available on Amazon as soon. Amazon only allows you to sell things. So Amazon doesn't take pre-orders unless you give them 50% of your profits, Ooh, which we didn't uh, want to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, which, sorry, not 50%, 50, 55% of your profits would be totally fine. I would be willing to give Amazon 55% of my profits, but they want 55% of your listing price, um, which really isn't the amount of money that I currently wanted to give Amazon, uh, given that we're barely breaking even with the price uh, as is. Um, so they will go live on Amazon. My guess is 
in something between two and three weeks. All right. Hopefully. Right on. And do you get all five books for the pre-order price or do you just get the map? Sorry, what? All five. All five. All right. Well, that's good because I just pre-ordered while you were talking about how to do it. So Uh, The countries we uh, are delivering to are North America, so that's the US, Canada, Mexico, every country in Europe, um, Australia, New Zealand, and Israel. Coming out to $6 a book, that's pretty damn good. Like, you guys really could have bumped up the price a little bit and made it some profit. Yeah, but I really, I don't know. I just, first of all, I feel a bit bad about making profit on this book because I really feel like I I would want to pass it on to the authors, but I don't, that would be a lot of difficulty. And second of all, I just really think of this as like a good introduction to Less Wrong and the value that these books provide does not really come via the money, but really via the people I hope it inspires to work on the problems that I care about and that like I'm working on Less Wrong for. Um, yeah, I mean, the goal I, I've set myself is to uh, try and make it like um, net profitable. Um, if it's net profitable, then I feel very comfortable doing further projects like this. Um, but beyond that, uh, uh, I mean, I maybe don't need to tell you it's it's quite hard to get profits in books, and I don't think it would. Uh, I don't think it's a reasonable goal for it to cover the staff time that went into this. Um, <laughs> uh, um, but uh, I did want to, you know, most of the value is in people actually reading it, and so uh, we've tried to hit like net profitability and we'll go from there i mean obviously with this book set this is the first time we did it we were willing to take some amount of risk that it like uh you know to learn as we're learning it the first time we're willing to take some risk that it maybe doesn't turn out to be fully net profitable but we can do it next time or something um but i think we'll i don't know well we'll ask us in a month (laughs) i strongly suspect bump it up to 30 dollars because then we no longer are leveraging psychological pricing and i find (laughs) that um, you find that what pretty compelling to be like we bumped it up from 29 to 30 dollars because it cost 30 dollars all along we just told you 29 because it sounded slightly cheaper um i like that i think that um the other uh man i had something and it just slipped my mind um well oh yeah as far as profitability i mean uh you know it's probably too early to be thinking about it but like if your guys's pre-orders were you know a fraction of what you anticipate or of what you were expecting. And that was the price you were okay with. It seems like you guys are already doing pretty okay. And, you know, if it works out to where next year, it's not going to happen unless you get X dollars, I'm sure people would help make it happen. So. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely, uh, definitely the level, the level of demand has uh, made the, made it much more likely we'll be able to do this sort of thing again. We really, I really appreciate every person who was born set so far. I mean, the next thing I just want is the, is a beautiful, beautiful version of the sequences that's that's the thing I want to create. Just all of them in print. Finally, yeah. I also yeah, I have dreams of there are other writings on Less Wrong by single authors that I would like to maybe turn into books at some point. Um, I can see. Yeah, I don't know exactly what we'll do next, but uh, certainly the demand on this and waiting for the feedback as well when people actually get the product. And also, uh, I guess the obvious other thing I uh, would like hope is that uh, people realize that we do this. We're planning to do this annually, which means. Uh, if you would like to be in a set of books like this, uh, you can just write stuff to Lesteron. <laughs> and if you write stuff the Lesteron community likes, it's a good chance I will put you in a book. <laughs> and I will like make your images beautiful or whatever. Um, so I hope people like backchain that somewhat as well from this book set. That's a compelling argument. <laughs> yeah, I remember one of the authors, as I was telling them, you get to be in the book. They were like, huh, this makes me want to write on Lesteron like, considerably more. And I was like, mission accomplished. And they were like, ah. Oh, yeah, I see. <laughs> that was a good plan. 
All right. Well, we have been going for over two hours now. I <laughs> we should wrap it up. But I wanted to thank you guys so much, like not just for coming on here, but for all the work you've done for the Rashless community over the years. Of course, thank you for all the work you've done in this podcast. And also, of course, thank you, Inyash, in particular, for all the amazing work you've done on the HP Mall podcast, which has very positively affected my life and many other people I know. Yeah, many hours of... Uh, I remember cleaning the dishes as a teenager and uh, the flute coming on. I'm Inyash Brodsky. And just you being the voice of all the uh, Harry Potter characters, Mathis characters, has been brilliant. Damn. All right. Thanks. That's awesome to hear. <laughs> well, I can second Actually, both of those praises uh, for you guys and for Inyash as well. So, but Inyash already said it more more articulately than I was going to. So, <laughs> I actually um, just uh, riffing on that note. I did get recently to do sort of Inyash's job. I uh, two of my close friends had not read Methods, uh, and I and we just read it aloud to each other, partly in person, partly over Skype, and I got to do most of it. And I really loved doing all the voices. I got to like. Um, I got to do, you know, Professor McGonagall's up high and Dumbledore's down low and Snape is like Weasley. And like, I did, uh, I'll try not to say too much, but I did like Harry's as my normal voice. And then I like, I also did Krill as like my normal voice, but like a bit more refined. Anyway, it was really fun doing all of the uh, character voice. <laughs> I'm yeah. envious with that. <laughs> oh, it is, it is a total blast, especially if you really get into a character. Mm-hmm. But yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys for being here. Uh, we are going to take care of a few things at the end of the show. So we'll probably let you go here. Is there any final things you wanted to say or that we didn't touch on? That's a good question. Apparently not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you know how to find us. Um, anything you want to add to the show notes that hasn't been included in our email chain yet, uh, send it on over. Uh, this episode will go up uh, in on Wednesday. So, But, I mean, even after the fact, we can add stuff to the show notes and stuff. Um, this was great. I am, you know, like, like Inyash said, I think that uh, you guys have done a lot for the rationalist community and this project in particular. I mean, it's one thing to send somebody a URL link to be like, Hey, read this long essay. And they're like, yeah, sure. I'll put it in my 60 tabs. Um, if you say, Hey, bar, you know, hand them a book and say, send this, you know, give me, hand this back when you're done. It's, it's a, another way to um, I think really engage people. And what the other thing I'm, I'm enjoying about just skimming over the, the page previews is that like they're, they're pleasant to look at, but also it's not merely the sequences and, you know, some slate sarcotics posts. This is the community. And it, so it's, it's not um, it, it's, it's bigger than just the big names. And I, I really enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. 23 others and 44 posts. Fantastic. Um, there's a lot of really great Lazarangas and rationalists. And I like to get uh, these for everybody. Yeah, I mean, the nice thing is you can hand them to five people at the same time. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. My, I definitely have some dream of uh, walking up to some, I don't know, new people and being like, you guys need a better epistemology and whipping out epistemology <laughs> from my. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I've heard the good news of Lester. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just hang around outside of churches. <laughs> um, but yeah, I love this podcast. Thanks very much for inviting us on it. It's, it's the first podcast we've done. And uh, if they're all like this, this is going to be just basically fun. Yeah, you should be on again and help us with the sequences. <laughs> right. Yeah, come on again sometime. You know what? We have to stop recording before you guys can leave. Do you guys, do you guys want to just hang out for the... Uh, we've got just two bits of feedback to do. I, that will, we're totally down to sit here. Well, it seems like the easiest way to do it without me kicking you from the call, and I don't know what that would do to the recording. So, perfect. <laughs> All right. our hostages. <laughs> well, we'll let you out of here soon. What was the... Um, we had two two short pieces of feedback, right, Inyash? Yeah. 
Uh, so the first piece of feedback is from Richard J. Acton at uh, the subreddit, The Bayesian Conspiracy. Uh, this was back when we were talking about um, the the anti-encryption laws that were being proposed uh, in Congress. Uh, Richard says, making encryption effectively illegal is so impractical, I have no idea how people would respond to a law like that. I think most people would just carry on how they were with a few big players making nominal concessions, and it would just become another three felonies a day thing the government can use to arbitrarily squash you. And I also see that as a potential outcome because, you know, the government isn't, I guess they are going to impose backdoors on all major players if this comes in, but regular people aren't going to change their things too much. And yeah, it'll just be another thing like, oh, look, you sent an email yesterday. We can put you in jail for that unless you, you know, confess to whatever. Yeah, I I find that interesting. I mean, like, you're right. For, for most people, we'll just go about doing our day. Like most people are on Facebook where, where privacy doesn't mean anything. So like, I, I don't think that that'll like slow down the average person. And yet like there's, and I, you know, I don't get up to anything illicit. And, you know, my phone isn't a crime scene. And yet knowing that it's secure is reassuring. Um, I guess I would operate more or less identically to how I do now with the knowledge that, you know, anyone with a permit or the warrant can get in. Um, it's just, I don't know. It, it feels like the beginning of a very plausibly slippery slope. Yeah. Or just the marginal cost of making things a little bit shittier <laughs> is... I don't know. It, like, it kind of sounds like, ah, eh, well, it's just going to be another one of those things that suck. And it's like, do we need another one of those things? I'd rather not. I like that framing too. It's like, do we need things to be even more shitty? Come on. <laughs> Oliver, Ben, any any thoughts on that? Um, well, chiming in from, given that I work in web development all day, the big thing that definitely everyone is interfacing with every day is just that your browser uses HTTPS to talk to like basically any website you're on. Mm-hmm. And that is just a type of encryption pretty straightforwardly. Um, and that being outlawed definitely has really, really wide-ranging effects because the thing that like preventing that does is not only that like the government can access your data, but it means just that well you're also now on a much more adversarial environment of people being able to read your passwords and various other things um, if you're sending non-encrypted data. Um, so that kind of is really even if you are just talking to websites, you're actually talking primarily encrypted these days. Um, yeah. And if something has a backdoor that the government can access, in theory, it has a backdoor anyone with enough skills can access. Great. Yeah. All righty. Uh, moving on to the second piece of feedback. This is from our last episode on career hacking. Um, I, I found this one amusing, uh, <laughs> but also troublesome. Wes over on the Discord said, you guys left out the number one career hack. Lying on your resume. If you tell people you have a degree, most of them won't check. And if you do it in a clever way, almost none of them will check. <laughs> I thought I had mentioned that, and I guess I didn't, or maybe I was talking to somebody else about it. <laughs> but like when I got my library job, uh, I did manage to backdoor in the way that I described in the episode. But like Wes was like, hey, there's this universe like, that, that you could get a... Um, masters in library science from this school that no longer exists but it would have existed when you went to school and you could put it on your resume and then like no one will be able to even like fact check that because it doesn't exist anymore and then like it's even more like ways that i could be sneaky about it it's just like i'm just not gonna do it i don't i don't like lying like <laughs> it makes me uncomfortable but like yeah a big thing that could work and probably like it probably would have been fine. Like I, I, I basically really dislike lying. Um, not only because I, I feel it's like 
a way of deforming other people's maps, and that is an inherently hostile act. But just the repercussions it has on me, like then I have to think up of what I was doing during those four years and the people that I met and what college clubs I was going to, like probably none of that will ever come up, but it could somehow slip that, you know, I mentioned the last place I worked and someone would be like, weren't you in school during that time? I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. I was a full-time student and a full-time accountant at the same time, which (laughs) it's a level of headache I don't want. And like together, together, just the, the hostility of lying and, and the practicalities of it seem terrible to me. But yeah, it is an outside the box solution. It's not one I would endorse for the exact same reasons. Like I don't like lying. I'm uncomfortable with it for the reasons you described. And like, like you said, the the burden of having to keep track of your lies. Like the best thing about just being honest all the time is that you don't have to remember what story you gave one person versus another. Like, yeah, it, it, it saves you all those headaches. MPQ replied on the on the Discord that uh maybe an example closer to the mark is life hack. If you see your neighbor's Amazon packages outside the apartment, just take them. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have it for free. About life hack, if you go to an airport, they're just all of these uh, suitcases that are just nobody is paying attention to, and you can just take and leave with. Um, yeah. 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 Wes had the counter that it's um, most school doesn't teach any important career skills, especially depending on some of these degrees, and are there mostly for signaling, which is a, a you know a destructive game anyway. So uh, you get the benefits without having to go through the value destroying process of getting the degree. Yeah, it's kind of I, I feel like I personally don't want to do it, but I don't find it to be that morally egregious, considering that we're in a system that wants you to pay like. 15k to go get a piece of paper that says you know things that you already know like in my case my the library director told me that like oh you could go get your master's but it'll be really easy for you you already know all the stuff they're gonna teach and i was just like am i really gonna have to to burn fifteen thousand dollars in so many hours of my life yeah i don't know where Um, you guys are thinking you guys can get a slip of paper from a school for fifteen thousand dollars you can get a you can get a semester for fifteen thousand dollars not a a master's degree and it was an online program. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, fair enough. I still might be misremembering the price. It might have been more than that. But yeah. I, I know that uh, trying to get a... I know, li- lying about my degree would not have quite help. The, the primary reason I stayed through the last half of my degree was uh, so that I could get a visa to the <laughs> uh, US to work here. Um, and unfortunately, yeah, no. I, I, I got the literal, I think, worst grade you can get while still getting a degree. Because I didn't want to stick around for it for any other reason. <laughs> um, but uh, that is an excellent yeah. motivation to to go to school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> half-ass it with all you got. Was I think yeah. the chapter title of one of the uh, replacing guilt? Yeah, one of the Which oh, reminds me, I, I want to plug yep. that audiobook again. Someone, uh, um, John Luca oh, yeah. has been doing uh, a podcast that's been reading the Replacing Guilt series, and. Oh, Oh, it's great. Uh, you can just search replacing guilt on any, on any, uh, uh, podcatcher. Um, like we, we had an episode about it, I don't know, several, several months ago. And I was like, yep, I need to read that. And kind of like with these books, I imagine like just getting it in a format that will actually entice me to get to it. I've, I'm now waiting for them every week. I've listened to all 30 something episodes. And mm. best thing is, is people who like, I know don't read less wrong have told me that once I recommended this, they've listened to all of them and enjoyed it. So like, uh, just a you know the virtue of getting things out there in in multiple formats. Yeah, that seems great. Did you just read the word 
podcatcher? I did. Is that that's the word, that right? A, I have never heard that's a fight. That's a very good uh elegism. I can't remember the word. But yeah, website it's a thing that catches podcasts. I didn't I don't I don't know where I got it from. I I, I did not create it though. I feel like I've heard it before. Like people other people who do podcasts use that word. See, this is why they need to be fetched to Denver. They can be ip on all the uh, ip in on all the hip slang. <laughs> all right, we'll move to Denver then. If you guys right. do relocate to Denver, get get in touch with Jace. They've got a housing idea. Nice. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I want a group house, but uh, there's the COVID happening. And... Yeah, COVID makes everything really hard. Um, yeah. Also, makes group houses kind of more valuable. I would have probably turned insane if I didn't have all my housemates. Providing yeah. a basic connection. <laughs> yeah. I have a handful of coworkers who live alone, and I, uh, I try to do my best to like hang out with them while we're working together, even if it's just being on a call, like while we're both doing our separate jobs. Because I'm fortunate enough to live with somebody I love spending time with, and that's an uh, enormous privilege right now. So, yeah, I've just been slowly going insane, so it's been working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's weird to miss humans. Like I've, I'm such an introvert and it's just super weird to like, I, I think I was actually texting Charlie about this. I was just like, do you miss people? I'm starting to, I'm starting to miss people like going out and the, the, the other humans and talking to them. It's weird. Yeah. <laughs> Never thought I would feel this way. Is this how extroverts feel all the time? <laughs> they, I mean, maybe we could ask them, but I don't know if we want to get that close to one. Identified <laughs> <laughs> extrovert, and we've had like sort of joking, but not joking. Those kinds of conversations, like, really, you like that? That's so weird. What's that like? I think rather than ask them, I'd rather just make an MTurk survey, so I don't actually have to interact with any of them. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right, well, I believe that's it. So, shall we just uh, thank our oh, patron? Yeah. And call it a day? I gotta go of make course. some food and then eat it for for nutrients. So, oh, is it my turn this time? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Scroll down. Who are we thanking? Uh, looks like we are thanking Emilio Alvarez. That was Emilio. the pause for the Tada noise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Emilio, thank you for helping my support. Head. Yeah. Thank you for helping support this broadcast. We're, or podcast, rather. Wow. Where uh, <laughs> we can, uh, you know, help bring you people like these on to tell us all about fucking Less Wrong 2.0, where people are nowadays keeping the rationality thing going. Yeah. Um, and you really, you really make, I don't know, all, all our Patreons make this much more rewarding, both in the, in the sense that, you know, we get money for it, but also in the sense that, um, similar to like how you guys were saying when people just felt much better learning that they're in a book uh, that's going to be published. It's, it's nice to have people like monetarily supporting you in, in that way. Like being, we appreciate what you do. Yeah. We're hoping that uh, Scott gets some of that soon. Yes. Oh, cannot wait. Some of that sweet unit of caring. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Perfect. And thanks again, Emilio. I was quiet because Inyash said everything I was going to say, which seems to be kind of a running theme this episode. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right. I, I think we're good like, to call I, it here, guys. After saving me, I kind of just was like, "Thanks." <laughs> I need food. Human <laughs> words. What are they? Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, Oliver and Ben. This was fantastic, and I can't wait to get these in the mail. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Great. Super. Cool. I look forward to it too. Tell me, tell me what you think of them. I sure will. And everyone cool. uh, listening, well, I guess you know how to find LessWrong.com. I was going to say there'll be a link to find them, but 
<laughs> if you guys can't find that, you know, good luck. I mean, you would be one of the lucky 10,000. Like, that's that's really... That's valid. Wait, this is all online? I could read it myself now? Great. Lesswrong.com spelled like it sounds. You know, uh, we did actually, um, uh, for the period where we were making Lesswrong 2.0 and we hadn't taken over, we had the URL lesserwrong.com. And then we then made our second sort of dev server, lessestwrong.com. We then redirected Lesserwrong to Lesserwrong. So if you go to Lesserwrong, it'll take you to Lesserwrong. But Lesserwrong is still just our development server. You can still go there and see what what will happen with Lesserwrong in a week. Even less wrong than before. Well, it's it's less wrong. It can't get any less wrong than that, right? (laughs) Well, arguably, it could be least wrong, which is less wrong than less of wrong. Uh, Less is wrong. Least Uh, least wrong. (laughs) Least wrong is uh, not financially available, so we stick with lessest. Okay. The ultimate one's just going to be correct. (laughs) 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 Wrong at all. Once we get to the transhuman future. That's right. Correct.com. Nice. Oh, uh, uh, less long is our short form fa- page. Oh yeah, <laughs> you go to lesslong.com and it redirects to our short form page. Yeah, and then uh, I can't remember the other ones we had. Um, well, of course, there's Greater Wrong. And you... Greater Wrong, who is one of our competitors, who makes mm-hmm. a different UI for the site. More right, which I think is like a conservative. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not advertise more right. That's. Are they still there? I don't uh, think so. I think they collapsed a long time ago. Uh-huh. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. Okay. okay. Uh, thanks, everyone, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Good night, awesome. everybody. Thanks again. Goodbye. Bye.